0: Hey, it's Steve here. Are you serious about hunting or self-defense? Well, starting in 1996, XS Sights took proven dot-the-eye sight pictures from firearms used on African safaris and applied that methodology to modern defensive handguns, all made in America and trusted by industry leaders. Meat Eater listeners can get an exclusive discount on the XS Sites website. So just go to XSSites.com and use code Meat Eater at checkout for 25% off. XS Sites, the fastest sites in any light. 46% of Americans expect to leave behind financial obligations when they pass away. So it's crucial to make sure your family is financially protected. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you, shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. Hunt, the Meat Eater
2: Podcast. You can't predict anything.
0: Presented by First Light, creating proven versatile hunting apparel from merino base layers to technical outerwear for every hunt. First Light, go farther, stay longer. Hey, this is Steve. This sounds weird, is because I'm using the voice memo function on my phone, and Phil's patching it into the show. It's a very important message I have for you. On May 3rd, we're doing a live show in Billings, Montana, at the Alberta Bear Theater. So Alberta, like uh, you know, Canada, and Bear, not like a bear that you'd go hunting for, but B A I R, Alberta Bear Theater. Get tickets through them. Live show. May 3rd. I'm going to be there. uh, Giannis Poutelis will be there. Old Cal. For the entire show, the flip-flop flesher, Seth Morris, will be fleshing beaver and raccoon hides off on, I believe, what's called Stage Left in a beautiful spotlight. Chester the Divester will be there. And everyone that buys a ticket gets a signed copy of my new book, Outdoor Kids in an Inside World. Get your tickets now. Go to Alberta Bear Theater website, May 3rd, Billings, Montana. Can't wait to see you guys. Love y'all. All All right, everybody. Uh, Here's the deal. Normally, the way the show works is we do, um, like, what kind of intro? I don't know if anybody out there actually listens carefully enough to notice this, but you guys probably don't even realize this, that are in here. I think we do. We'll do like a light intro of a guest, right? Like a light intro. A little banter. Are you explaining to us how this works? Yeah. And listeners. I think we got it, but... Okay, tell me, then what the happens? Listeners. Do a light intro.
3: Light intro, then we introduce everybody. And then if what If you happens? remember. And then what happens? And then we go into talking about shit that either people wrote in about or stuff that we did that week or... A
4: couple rabbit holes, maybe. Yeah. And then then what happens? We go
3: on a few tangents <laughs> and then we sometimes argue about shit, and then we go to
0: the guest and talk oh. about. Look at that. Seth's been paying attention? Seth's been pay- well, we're going to change things up because we're going to do a light. I'm going to do a couple talking points, then the light intro. Cool. Um, this is going to further test people's ability to pay attention because just because of, of a weird issue I don't want to get into, where we, we recorded a show that we're going to release after this show. It's it's features our beloved Giannis Putellas who's sitting here right now. Uh and you're gonna to want to miss it. In it, I allude to a flea at the end I allude to a flea story that I wanted to tell but ran out of time. So now people are gonna in the future hear me allude to a flea story that I want to tell, but I'll have already told it.
4: It's, can I can I tee can I tee it up for you? Please. <clears throat> so Steve had me come over and put a rack on his Can Am the other day. Well, I would, I wouldn't put it that way. <laughs> well, help. we we worked on help, help. Yeah, yeah. And Wait, I, you just wound up
0: running the project though. I
4: was, I was happy to, <laughs> I was happy to do it, but I show up. Steve comes out of his garage and he's kind of hold on, state.
2: hold on. You, you can't just say I just. He asked me to come over to put a rock... Rack,
0: rack, or oh, rack. rack on the installing can in. oh, installing a cargo rack. Chester's uh, Chester came over to help me install a cargo rack, but I wasn't yeah. able to give it my full attention because of my problem.
4: Yeah, so I got show it. up, you know, and Steve kind of comes out of the garage and he's like, "Oh man, guys!" He's kind of frantically moving around a little bit. He's like, "I'm in deep trouble right now, guys. <laughs> I'm in big trouble. Just hold on. Just do your thing." And this is why. So I had
0: brought a coyote home at night. And my dog hates coyotes and hates coyote fur skin, hates coyotes. Won't go near it. If you come in with a coyote hide, even a pelt, she goes to the other end of the house. She can tell she loves dogs, but she knows that that dog. It's not her friend. Never met a dog. She didn't like, but she can smell something on that. that like, that son of a bitch is not a right. She just knows. So I lay down on the floor of the garage and thinking, well, she'll never go near that. Then I'm down here in the studio and I'm looking at my text messages and my wife and our babysitter are having this like ongoing thing about, holy shit, the fleas on the dog. <laughs> and they're like, is it from the dog park? How could it be? They're like, they're all over. I mean, her head's crawling in fleas. And I'm thinking, no one knows about the thing in the garage except me. <laughs> so I got to be like,
2: I think I might have a little something to add here. You wouldn't have believed. You should have had just Chester it's roll like, over there and grab that coyote and just hide it. What?
0: Oh, and just
2: play dumb. Yeah. I really should have.
0: <laughs> it's like she went, you know, like when something's body temp gets to, like, there's a point at which fleas. Mm-hmm. They're on a sinking ship. They start migrating. They're on a sinking ship. It's like she laid down and and spooned with that thing. There's no way to explain the number of fleas on that dog.
5: I've heard, um, like trappers that have a have something that's got fleas will put like a warm rabbit next to it so they like a fro like a coal that something they trapped. That's cold. It's got fleas, They'll put a warm rabbit next to it, so all the fleas get on there. Who told you that? I, I don't know where I heard it. And then they'll put a is warm that like... mouse next to the rabbit. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, qu- just I heard, I'm not saying I heard. Not saying it's area.
2: true. <laughs> I'm saying I heard it. And, and then you
0: burn the mouse. <laughs> then did all the
2: fleas on there <laughs> to make a warm rabbit. Is that like? 45 seconds on medium <laughs> high? I don't know. No.
5: I, I, I Look, I'm just saying it's a funny story. Well, right? I hear all kinds of stuff I don't talk <laughs> you about. You had a podcast. warm dog next to a cold coyote. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Yeah, give me an example of something funny you heard that then you decided not to talk about.
5: Since uh, it'd be since
2: something like that. Uh, You want another good, real quick, flea story? Well, I, uh, no, Yeah, but
0: okay, go ahead, because then I'm going to finish my flea story up, but go ahead.
6: Old outfitter I worked for, he used to collect... Uh, uh, rabbits for a mink farm in mm-hmm. Colorado. That's how he put himself through college, partially anyway. And uh, he would load up the trunk of his car with jackrabbits every night. Mm-hmm. And his roommate was like, hey man, can I borrow your he, car? I got a date. Fun.
0: He used, uh, he he did this business in a car with a trunk.
6: Yeah. Not and, a truck and, with a bed. And, and <laughs> like would drive student, alfalfa see? fields at night. <laughs> and, and just thump rabbits with, with his front bumper. Oh, okay. You know, Mink Farmer wasn't real uh, particular about how the meat showed up. F- field care. Yep. Um, And so he didn't get a chance to drop the rabbits off to the Mink Farm. Let's his buddy take his vehicle and uh, his buddy and his date seemed to really hit it off and they were using the back seat <laughs> mm. up until a point where they... Uh, neither one of them could concentrate due to the itching involved. Oh, yeah. And apparently these two were just coated Duh. head to tail in uh, in fleas.
0: That was me, this day I'm talking about. I went to the gym. So I got up in the morning and took the coyote out of my truck. And I must have bear hugged that son bitch without thinking about it. I'm at the gym just itching like blue blazes. <laughs> I'm sitting here itching like blue blazes. And I'm like, man, I got to freeze these clothes, which I did. I got to go home, put these clothes in the freezer, and take a shower. But I thought it was like I wasn't even thinking about the damn dog. I'm still got, I got, I'm still a little itchy. Is
5: that it, I, I got a question. Is that the coyote that's sitting by my desk right now? Yeah, but I froze it. <laughs> All right. I froze the hide. <laughs> I froze the hide. Garrett's
4: using it as a wall. He wants, he's keeping it as a wall hanger. Dude, that, I, I'm surprised that <sighs> you didn't get in trouble. You probably did actually for With the my smell. Wife? No, the smell of that thing was oh, just Oh no, no one like that. But uh, you know, I don't, I, they don't.
0: They know I'm not even. I don't even care to hear about that kind of stuff anymore. Sure. That yeah, it was, yeah, it was a really fecund odor. Uh, oh, another, <laughs> another pre-talk thing. Uh, I was getting checked by a game warden in Arizona a couple weeks ago, and he said, "Oh," after he checked my license and realized I was cool, he goes, he says, "Oh, you were talking on the podcast of why we do grip and grins with confiscated material." he goes, it's not like a grip and grin. He said later in court, it's to demonstrate the magnet. It's to later in court for a jury. It's just to like demonstrate the magnitude of something. Cause he's, you can tell people all day long about X pounds of whatever. And it's kind of in one ear and out the other. But when you're like, you lay, lay it on the all it out. You know, same thing with when they lay all the narcotics out. It's just so people can be like,
4: my goodness. And you weren't like and so it's not because you guys are a little bit proud that you guys no, count. No, he said it's it's
0: stuff. just a it's just a thing to present in a courtroom. Just to He said the same thing with drugs. Like you tell people like kilos or whatever, and then they see it and they're like, holy cow, look at all that stuff. So that's why he does that. Uh oh, another funny thing is I on Sunday was ice fishing and stood up in my phone. iPhone 12, right down the ice hole, 26 feet of water. And we had a flasher going, and you could watch that phone. <laughs> now if you call his phone, a perch picks up. Yeah, I, w- <laughs> I went and stood over the hole yesterday, and I was like, it's so, like, Chester was off doing something twenty, roughly 30 feet away. And I'm like to think, Chester, that my fishing, phone, Steve. that I'm as close to you as I am to my phone, but it's so far away. So you guys were fishing yesterday, which was a Monday. Kind of took pictures. We were, yeah. It was. We work, were, I work. fished Sunday. Work, I fished Monday, yeah. and yeah. Monday was worse than Sunday. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh.
6: you know it was uh worse than fishing? No, it was uh, sitting in front of the computer all day. Oh, working. Yeah. Uh-huh. No. We were it talking was, about that. It's like was best day. Yeah. We're try- <laughs> best was day saying that a worst day,
2: bad, of bad day of, of fishing's better a than a bad day at work. <laughs> uh, no, that, that was me saying. <laughs>
1: I have a pretty good quote on that, actually.
2: Oh, <laughs> we're not ready for you yet. Well,
1: okay, I'll
0: hold that quote. Uh, guys, we're gonna yeah. get into you hardcore in a minute here. <laughs> uh, oh, another thing, people need to start. I, I, people need to start uh, go go on Clay Newcomb. So like Newcomb Clay underscore Newcomb, and start pressuring Clay for Bear Grease podcast. I've been trying to get Clay to do uh, a deep dive on the Wetzel brothers. Lou Wetzel and the Wetzel brothers. He won't do it.
2: It's starting to piss me off. Can you tell us why? What's interesting about the Wetzel brothers?
0: Um, Very controversial frontier figures. Mm. Um, And very controversial frontier figures from the Indian Wars along the Ohio River. Why don't you just do something on them? Because th- Clay should do something on them. No. The Wetzels. Well, if you're so interested. Oh! They used to call them the Death Wind.
4: Well,
5: there see, were now, so, they were now social, you bring yeah. it up, and we're all interested. Yeah, the death wind. Gotta...
0: They were sociopaths. Um, you could like they were psychopathic killers who were sort of tangled up in the Indian Wars.
5: They, they haven't made a movie about those guys. <gasps>
0: Fascinating, bloodthirsty little bastards. Um, he should really do a dive on the Wetzels. But he's like he likes to do things that have redemption, and there's no redemption with Lou Wetzel
5: sounds like a Tarantino movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I
0: mean, his family was like, his family was mostly killed off by the tribes. He didn't like to do vengeance through the military. They just like to go with their go their own, go with their own. And they would cross the Ohio and just go on these like murderous trips. Fascinating dudes, horrible people, but fascinating. And, lo- and he won't do it because there's no redemption. So you could just put a comment on everything that Clay posts. Just start writing the death wind. Last quick note before we get to our guests is: if anyone knows, if someone could write in, there's got to be like a t- like a 1022 expert out there who does souped up 1022s.
6: Hmm. Well, didn't you guys cover all the biathlon and shoot stuff and
0: all that? I mean. No, but 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 I bought my boy a Ruger ten twenty two for his birthday. He doesn't like it because it's not a tack driver.
5: All, you got to do a lot, like do spend a research. lot of money making those things. In they spend tank. a lot of money. Yeah,
6: yeah the Olympic uh ten twenty two target, mm-hmm. right? Uh, a lot of guys use it for dialing in big game rifles too. But you know, it's oh, why is it a ten twenty two target? It's not just a target. It's it's the target that they use for like competition 22. It's not ten twenty two. You just said 20. yeah. I did. Oh, I, I was just 22. Yeah.
0: oh yeah. Well, I'm trying to find someone who
6: get a bunch of ammo, all, all as many manufacturers as you can dig up. Get that target, and and,
0: oh, and little Jimmy's and gonna be to very sol- pleased with one of them. And try to solve the problem that way. Yeah,
5: I think there's a lot of tweaking that goes on with those ten twenty two. Well, I know so that's to, what I'm curious about
0: because it, it, it's got like I'm just curious like what people do the competition should yeah. Like, shooters, you get yourself a CZ the only thing you need to do is they restock lighten the trigger. Them
5: and rebarrel them and well, I like I what you're saying they, yeah. but as far
6: as the the ammunition too like we had one of the like the top tier 22 manufacturers up in Kalispell I'm not sure if they're still there um but even even those rounds like competitive shooters will will go through and look for flaws and deformities and and then go with like the most uniform batches, and and set them aside in batches. And oh, really? Yeah, there's yeah. big,
2: huh? Big deal. Yeah. Barb, uh, was running a ten twenty two. Hers was souped up. Mm-hmm. I think all, but pretty much just had a bull barrel. I yeah, think was the main I'm not deal. sure what else
0: she had done with it. All right, Brent, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, Brent West is here from High Peaks Alliance. Tell us what High Peaks Alliance is. And Corinne thinks you might be the first native. Mainer. What do you guys call each other?
1: Mainers? I uh, guess.
0: May You know, like there's a Michigander, only, only
1: a like few of us.
0: Like Montanans. Uh, just Maynard, call each other by name. Michigander.
1: <laughs> uh, Mainers. Yeah. That's Mainer. Right. That's the actual thing. Yeah. Mainers.
0: Huh. Okay. High Peaks Alliance.
1: Yeah. High, High Peaks Alliance is a conservation and recreational nonprofit in Franklin County, Maine. So our major goals are to conserve land and access for our communities. And we do that through a number of uh, different projects, whether it's trail projects or land conservation projects. Um, but the real thread is that everyone who grew up here or lives here or visits here uh, have a lot of things in common. We all have a woodpile, a garden out back, a little buck meat in the freezer. Uh, all these things kind of tie us together as people who love to live in rural Maine and visit rural Maine. It's not enough hassle up there, and it's a really great place to live because you just have this freedom to roam.
0: And you want to keep it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, tell us what's in that bag right there.
1: Uh, I brought you some New Portland wood-fired, hand-tapped, I used a old hand drill, buckets, spiles, maple sugar.
0: Not syrup, mind you.
1: Well, so this got me in some trouble at the airport. Um, like you had pu- a
0: big bag of brown cocaine. <laughs> I
1: got pulled out a line, and the lady tested it and sniffed it. Did she taste it? No, but she was. She did stick her pinky out a little bit. She
0: didn't do like in the movies where she rubbed it into her lip. <laughs> <laughs>
1: It, it turned blue. Like, so I just been watching too really much good. Miami Vice. And I imagine in
6: class, like when you're training for that job, they're like, "If you come across powder, don't taste don't it. Don't sniff it."
5: <laughs> too
1: like. Well, I was thinking a way how how we could give you something, a piece of mane here that kind of in line with um, your values. And Cal actually has had some of this already, but uh, this uh, is the
0: first time I've ever uh, came into physical contact. I think. With plenty of the syrup, which is maple syrup. Yeah. But tell me how you got it down. Like, how do you get down to crystal form? And is um, that a real pain in the ass?
1: Well, what I what I do is you make an abundance of this. So, like, my father uh, boils a lot of it. I tap a lot of the trees. We kind of do that together. He has an old um, oil tank cut in half that we put a pan on top, and mm-hmm. we burn wood under it to boil it off. So it takes about 42 gallons of sap to make one gallon of syrup. Mm-hmm. One gallon of syrup will probably reduce again by 40% or so when you boil it to, I forget the temperature, but it's like 352 degrees or something like that that you have to boil the syrup to and then start stirring the crap out of it and it just starts crystallizing. And then most of it is fine, but you can run it through a few food processor to like break up the big pieces. But... You you could put that in water, and make it back to syrup if you got the you good? The, the right amount. But
0: Yanni's snorting some right now off a key.
1: My we pr- pretty much mm, only use see. maple that's uh, sugar now for we don't really buy any sugar anymore. Do you yeah, guys call this, it a? It's really good. Do you guys call it, it a sugar good. bush
4: up in Maine too? Like your little operation? Sugar yeah, bush. yeah.
1: There's a lot of people do maple syrup right now. Like literally, my father sent me a picture. He's boiling today. Um, so what what you want is sugar oh. maples are the best, but pretty much any maple species will work. Um, and you want freezing at night and about high 30s, low 40s uh, during the day. And what that happens is the, the ends of the branches will freeze. And when they thaw out during the day, they create a vacuum. And that's what makes the sap run.
0: No. Yeah. That's yeah. what's going on in there?
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah, and all you have to do Can is tap. Did
0: you, did you know that? I mean, I knew it ran, but I didn't know it was related to that. Seth probably knew that because he's trained up in forestry. Oh,
4: well, there you go. My family's got a little sugar bush back home. My I cousin back, home. Huh? Cousin Jake. So, yeah, Yanni's <laughs> ordered some of his syrup, but it's pretty fascinating that whole whole scene. It's fun. You guys nowadays do it very technically.
1: You know, it's it's reverse osmosis, oil fired. We do it pretty old school.
0: So that the, what we got here is we got a quart size Ziploc. That's good. Probably 60% full. And that's the result of what volume of
1: sap? Uh, I'm unsure. I had a huge, like, two-gallon bag that I just scooped that out uh, and threw it in my carry-on. So, I mean, they say it really doesn't reduce that much from liquid because it's already very viscous as syrup. Yeah. So you're really not taking that much more water out of it. Um, So you could take a quart of maple syrup and maybe get you know, 75% of that in volume and sugar. Got gotcha. you. Do yeah. you bake with it? I don't do much baking. My wife loves to use it, but, uh, How long yeah. have you been married? Um, sick going on six years. that going all right? That's yeah, going really good. Yeah. yeah. No, she's actually- got How many kids you got? I got one. Seth's getting married. He's, yeah, well, I think we all <laughs> need to get, get strapped down as good American men. She actually is a you think, big you think it's good
0: for America to have married um, males? So, well,
1: if you are into population dynamics, uh, we're going towards a pretty uh, crazy cliff of not many young people and a whole lot of old people. Like Maine, for instance, by 2028, ha, we'll have uh, from 2018 to 2028, there'll be a 40% increase in our population of 65 plus. Mm-hmm. Anywhere from an 8 to 12% decrease in all other age groups.
0: Short-term, that sounds scary. Long-term, I like it.
1: Yeah. I mean, it might be difficult. I mean, just uh, in a global
0: live. sense, I do, like globally, I don't think there's anyone out there thinking that globally we need a higher human population.
1: I don't know. I think a lot of people think in conservation and land and natural resources that human are the scourge of the earth. I think that's a poor way to look at people. I think. No,
0: not, I didn't say that.
1: Well, I think- Have you that's heard that's anyone say on a global <laughs> level,
0: have you heard, do you know of any global thinker or, or like on the global level, someone saying what this earth needs is more billions of people? Anyone?
1: Uh Jordan Peterson talks about uh, that dynamic of that more people isn't a bad thing.
0: Does he hunt and fish a lot? He doesn't look like it.
1: <laughs> well, that's that's, <laughs> the, that's the biggest rub when it like comes to it. Like when I look to...
0: at Jordan Peterson, I don't see, I'm not like, there's a- there's a hard hitting outdoorsman. Go
5: get
1: him. No, I think he's a uh, you know, questioning he's climate change and stuff like that too. So yeah.
0: no, he's a thinker. Um I'm I'm coming at this from a hunting and fishing perspective. More I mean, land to have population. yourself kind of thing. No, just global population. Listen, man, you guys are starting to make you you're acting like I'm saying something crazy. <laughs> I don't no, think there's I'm anyone sorry. out there that says, what we really need is 9 billion human global citizens. It's I, just like, no one is saying this.
6: If you relate it to the amount of uh, piles of human feces at a trailhead, like the relationship to the population, to the relationship of human piles of feces at a popular trailhead.
3: Mm-hmm.
6: Yeah. I mean, less people is better. Yeah, just from a
1: right? poop perspective. Yeah. Well, you yeah, that, that's a confounding variable. Just the, the poop trailhead <laughs> index. When you're losing more access by default, you're gonna get more of those piles at your public access points. Yeah, oh, no, that's true.
0: So if I, I, don't, I don't want to dwell on this, but I'm just curious. <laughs> this is I, like if I, if someone said to you, you can you can you're uh, you're not causing any pain and suffering, but someone said to you, you can choose that in a decade the Earth what are you at right now? Seven billion, seven something billion. Someone says to you, you can choose, there's no, you're not making pain and suffering. You can choose that in a decade, there's 6 billion global citizens or there's 8 billion global citizens. up to you. No pain and suffering. But what do you choose? What would you choose?
1: I I think I get your point. The point I'm trying to so look at mean is- six. So you have a number <laughs> of kids too, right? Yeah, three of them. Three of them. So- In the last twenty so years, though, we've had a big decline in families having four kids, three kids, Mm -hmm. and that's been traded over to no kids. Hard to deal with. Well, but it's also you know, all these guys are getting married later, they're having kids later, and that also affects you know more people getting into the outdoors, liking these things. So it's just uh, the original. Point I'm trying to make is you shouldn't look at people as necessarily the problem because there's a lot of good that comes with people having kids, having families, uh, you know, having those relationships in your community. You know, I think those things lead to better outcomes for the land in general.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, you're talking to a guy who has three kids.
1: Yeah. You're part of the problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And you're talking <laughs> to a guy who I think the dude should be married.
1: Yeah. Exactly,
0: because I think it allows them to focus on it allows them to focus on productivity.
1: Well, ho- house chores, yeah, for sure.
0: <laughs> Before I was married, I focused a lot of time on just drinking alcohol. That was my focus, and shooting pool. Really? Oh, dude! When I was in graduate school, man, we'd sometimes finish up, and if like I whatever, are we'd you a shark? I, I got good at it. We'd sometimes go down there to get, we'd like finish up doing something or another and go down like at noon or one down to the Dinosaur Cafe to get like a po' boy. And the next thing you knew was last call. It's like, man. <laughs> like, that's we, what we shot. Call putting in a shift. Yeah, man. it's like we just shot poo for 12 hours.
1: <laughs> well, I think that's the attraction of going so long, you know, all your 20s being free, hunt, and fish, do whatever, right? Oh, yeah.
0: All right. Uh, Crin said you had some uh, some main factoids. Who generated these factoids?
1: They're, they're factoids. There. Did you generate them? I I reached out to many. Actually, we enlisted a Jeopardy champion to come up with some of these. Are you playing trivia with us later? I would love to. Are you intimidated, or do you think you're going to do well? I'm not scared a bit, Steve. See, I know like Cal didn't tell do
4: me. Good.
0: Cal didn't tell me you were like a contrarian and in, in, uh like a real fact based contrarian
1: guy. Well, I am from New England. You know, he's a mana. We <laughs> we like it. That's one thing I noticed in the the Westerners. You guys take offense fairly quickly. What do you think of that? Yeah, I'm from Michigan. You know, <laughs> you noticed you notice <laughs> that where?
2: Yeah.
1: Well, just out and about, you know, we're just we're in your 24 New hours. England,
0: hours and well, like we together. like a level of play. You gotta talk to Cal because Cal's yeah. from the area. Yeah, Cal's Brent? the only one here
3: that.
6: Brent canvassed the town yesterday talking with everybody. I talked to all sorts He's of people. He's like,
0: everybody podcasts. I talked to you was offended. <laughs> it must be the town. <laughs> yeah, but nobody that lives here
5: is from here. So, be no, news. everyone's
1: really nice. I actually got a pretty good lowdown on what's happening on the Madison River, the dam blowout. I hear that's fairly contain- contentious around here.
6: It's just going to make bigger trout. Uh, listen, okay. We,
0: we <laughs> covered right that pretty Oh, Okay. All well. right, but anyway, give me some main <laughs> factors. We got to get the show rolling here.
1: Well, uh, I I would just want to tell you more about you know Maine as a place that's kind of steeped in sporting heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1847, Henry David Thoreau, you know, wrote his book on the Maine woods. Went up to. He's a candy ass. You like well, that guy? It, <laughs> he did inspire Teddy Roosevelt. <laughs> He's a total to candy ass.
0: Yes. Well, he's like obsessed with his mom. Even when he was doing that stuff about living in that cab, he's still <laughs> walking home to his mom's every other day.
1: Well, I mean, he had it a little harder than you and us, right? Like, no, I don't think power. so. He didn't have power. I don't have think so. I think things. he
0: was, uh, I, I think he, wasn't he like running off someone else's money and stuff? Well, probably. He was dabbling. He's a candy ass. He was yes. a dabbler. It, it, go on, though.
1: Well, anyways, my point was that kind of started Maine as a uh, tourist uh, destination. Um, and vacation went, land, right? I it's... went
0: to the woods to live deliberately. <laughs> kind of at my mom's, though.
1: I, I actually haven't read the Maine woods. So. <laughs> 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 this is a factoid that was brought up to me that they thought would be important to say.
0: Um, he was a misanthrope. A what? A misanthrope. What's that? Hated people. Like Steve.
1: Well, I Yeah, think and you're <laughs> like pro people. Go on. Pro people's good, man.
0: Yeah, we're in a showdown now, buddy. I this know. This showdown.
5: This showdown
0: is going to reach its climax during the yeah, trivia. I,
1: think I noticed in the trivia, he's very competitive. Mm-hmm. And I like that <laughs> about someone. So um, he's already playing hardball, I see. Uh, but, anyways, uh, I brought you a book to peruse. It's called Becoming Teddy Roosevelt. I thought oh, you'd like that. this. Um, and that's just by bookmark. It's not a, that's going to be the only Teddy Roosevelt
0: photo (laughs) I've never seen. Well, there you go. Have you seen that picture before?
1: Yeah. I own the book. I mean, besides (laughs) this book.
0: (laughs) Look at that. Let me see it. Talk about, uh, having a weird relationship with your ma, this guy
6: and running off of somebody else's money.
0: That's true, but I still like it. Sounds one. like a
5: candy ass.
1: Well, that book's about uh, his time in the Maine woods and how uh, Bill Sewell and Wilmot Dow, two Maine guides, kind of uh, had a big impact on his life. Um, so he went up and hiked Katahdin in moccasins. He did all sorts of crazy stuff. Um it's a great book because it gives you uh, at the time, a lot of people were going to Maine because it was so accessible to New York and Boston, and it was a wild country. So it gets in some
0: wild-ass wilderness on a train.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what kind of drove a lot of things. Like uh, in our neck of the woods, the train came through uh, late 1800s. Um, same time, Flyrod Crosby was the first ever Maine guide licensed, and she was a pretty interesting lady.
0: Hold on. Fly Rod Crosby was a woman?
1: Correct. Oh.
0: Not her birth name.
1: Cornelia Thurza Crosby and um, this is what she said about herself I am a plain woman of uncertain age standing six feet tall in my stockings I scribble a bit for various sporting journals and I would rather fish any day than go to heaven
0: You have to hook me up with her
1: Uh, Yeah she's awesome She's uh, passed away now Oh, I
0: was like I'll find a feller for her
1: (laughs) But uh, she would. She went to like the first sportsman's expositions in New York, and she brought like a whole log cabin down there, and it was the main woods, and she wore a scantily short doe skin skirt, which showed her calf. Um, that was scandalous back then. Really? Uh, friends with Annie Oakley. Hmm. And yeah, so very interesting. She'd catch a ton of fish. This is the same area. Um, I don't know if anyone's fly fisherman, but really a lot of history there. You have Carrie um, Stevens inventing a ton of different flies. You know, like... four
0: of these people in this
1: room were fly fishing guides. Good. Well, do you guys know uh, Gray Ghost?
4: Sure. Mm-hmm. The old streamers. Black Black
1: Ghost. Mm-hmm. Those are all invented in High Peaks of Maine. Uh, Herb Welch. Lies.
4: So that was that was like what, like in the nineteen twenties, nineteen ten. Well, so what was interesting, the rail
1: companies hired Flyrod and these people, and uh, they said, don't talk about how good our trains are. Talk about how good the fishing is. And so people would be, by default, taking the main central railway up to Rangeley and, and catch these huge brook trout. Um, the railroads used to host, like, big fish competitions, too.
6: Hmm. Right? So they'd, like, give away cash to whoever gets the biggest fish, but it was based off of, like— these got to get on the train, go a long way to go fish.
1: And there, That's you know, cool. there's a lot of history out West of like people going out to Alaska catching big salmon, but you, you couldn't get there back then in a reasonable amount of time. So you even have accounts of some of the ponds in this neck of the woods getting stocked with like sockeye salmon and stuff like that. Like just really bizarre histories of uh, sporting camps. America's longest running sporting camp ever is in this Franklin County, Pond Camps. But there's a bunch of old logging camps that turned sporting camps. And so there's a big tradition of that in this neck of the woods where people would come up from the smog of the city to get some fresh air and stay for two weeks a month.
0: Are you going to hit on how fly rod Crosby ended up being the last person to legally harvest a caribou in Maine? What year was that?
1: That was, I think it was around 1900. Um, But I think that also, that was, I, I couldn't drill down on exactly what year, that happened. Yeah. I know like in 1908 was like the last time they saw them up in Northern Maine. Like, so it was in that time period where she had shot the last legally one. So mm-hmm. I think the population was declining. They probably stopped hunting him.
0: Yeah. Is there ever any that, that you've been privy to? Like we just, in our own lifetimes watched caribou blink out in Idaho and Washington. Um, is there any serious conversation ever in Maine about trying to uh, restore Caribou herds in Maine, or is that just ship sailed?
1: They did that. They tried hard oh, they did? Um, yeah. for a number of years and it didn't didn't work out as well. Just... I think there's probably too many land changes in northern Maine, mm-hmm. forestry wise, yeah. to, to support them. Anyway. And I think you
0: were already coming in on a radically receding environment, anyways. I mean, if you go back to like the tail end of the Pleistocene, they were down in Ohio in Indiana, and Indiana. You know I mean? I think you're
1: sort of like, we kind of arrived in time to watch them blink out anyway. Well, I think like they have records of the red paint people in our neck was 12, 13,000 years ago. And so I'm guessing that's when it would have been more Tundra-like. Yeah. So more that's around. probably, you know, more when a lot of those were running around.
0: Tell me about how Eisenhower, um, I, don't, I, I I understand that Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower. He, oh. There's
1: a famous picture of him like holding up his hand to paratroopers on D-Day. And they've used this picture a lot. But apparently the backstory story is that he found out some of the troopers there were fly fishermen. So they all just started talking about their favorite fly fish. And that's what he's doing with his hand? Yeah. He's like holding the fly rod.
0: Really? Yeah. I heard a story. I've heard this a couple of times that after he addressed the 82nd Airborne, that he went and he gave him like a rousing speech, but went and wept because he knew it was a death sentence.
1: Yeah, I couldn't imagine.
0: All the guys coming in on gliders. He knew they'd all be dead in the morning, and so many of them were. Yeah. Imagine that.
1: No, I can't imagine anything like that. Like, go honestly. get them, boys.
0: <laughs> and they just, they had, like, all these calculations. Like, they're all just gone.
1: Well, you can imagine why he needed to go do some fly fishing.
5: His favorite fly was dr- old dry fly called the H&L variant. House and lot. Is that right? hmm
4: Hell of a fly.
5: Yep. Watch this transition. Chester,
4: you ever fished that
2: one?
5: Yeah.
4: It's crazy how you're still, like, flies invented so long ago are like still some of the, the best flies mm-hmm. today.
0: Uh, federal ammunition. This is interesting. Cause it's just interesting for a bunch of reasons, federal ammunition. So like a, uh, part of a publicly traded company, uh, Vista outdoors owns federal ammunition. It's a publicly traded company, federal ammunition is itself sending um, a million rounds of ammunition to Ukraine. Like the president was offered, the president of Ukraine, it's, it's weird. Like speaking of uh this, how, how do you, Zelensky, is that how you pronounce his name? This I guy used to so be a yeah. comedian. He was like a commentator. He'd be like a John Stewart. I mean, I don't know if it'd be like that, but he used to be like a, like a entertainer or comedian, the president of Ukraine. He's emerging as this kind of uh Churchill figure.
6: Yeah. Refusing to leave the Capitol. Um, rousing speeches. Yeah, Which is like total
0: so. defiance. He's been putting out all these offers, like uh, not offers. He's putting out like requests. We need this. We need that. We need this.
2: Yeah. And, um, when the U.S. offered to get him out of there, he replied with,
5: I don't know. What did he say? He doesn't need a ride. He needs ammunition. Oh, um, that's a hell of a line.
2: Oh, I need ammunition. Put that on my yeah. tombstone. <laughs> I need
5: ammunition,
0: not a ride. It's a hell of a leader. Uh, Federal Premium's parent company, Vista Outdoor, has committed to donating 1 million rounds of ammunition to Ukrainian forces. They're also launching a fundraiser to raise money to help Ukrainian refugees. When, uh, a, a spokesman wanted to say. Uh, there are some callings in life. We just have to answer. This is one of those callings. We think it's the right call to help our allies defend themselves. That's bold. It is. But I wonder if, uh, I just don't know, I'd just be curious how all this, I need to, we have an article about this on the TheMeatEater.com um, with a bunch of quotes from people and kind of give some of the background. But it's just not something I would have thought, would, I, I got to read about how, uh, it's not something I would have thought would be possible.
2: Well, they already, uh, have contracts with military people all across the world. That's why I think it's gonna be pretty easy and quick to do it.
6: Well, yeah. And you know, obviously like the announcement of the amount, like the sheer amount, dollar amount of aid that the, um, feds have authorized, right? Like I imagine this has to stand aside from contracts if you're going to, say we're going to send out a million rounds, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, the press release would be like, hey, we just got paid our normal rate to send out a bunch of rounds. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I did see that um, the Latvian government issued um, a statement saying, like, you know, because there's that call for aid that Zelensky set out yeah. for a foreign legion. Uh, and... and uh, you know, different countries are saying, yeah, <clears throat> like, if you go, don't fight. You know, there's lots of ways to help or stay here. There's lots of ways ways to help. But uh, I saw the Latvian uh, government issued a statement saying, like, if you feel like it's your
5: duty, go for it. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. And they're going to let people cross. Mm-hmm. What was that saying, Giannis, that Latvian saying that you said is getting revived these days? no
2: nummies, no uh,
5: yet, yet, Soviet.
2: Oh, yeah. It's just what used to be on T-shirts and placards and everything when we were kids yeah. going to protests when we when Latvia yeah. was still under the USSR. We used to walk around. Now saying, they're
5: using it again.
2: nyet What does that mean, Yanni? It just mean it's in Russian. It just means no, no. Yet is no in in Russian. Here's
0: one gripe I got with America. This thing that like people now complain about turkeys. You know what I'm saying? It's like just like municipalities that are like at war with turkeys cuz the turkeys are too mean. So the, the, there's a there's like this this huge dispute in Sacramento between mail carriers and wild turkeys. Like it's come to blows. There's an article out in the LA Times. Mail carrier accused of killing aggressive wild turkey. <laughs> This guy, Sacramento County, um, the mail carriers have been, quote, terrorized by wild turkeys, at times disrupting deliveries. This week, tensions between the Fowl and one U.S. Postal Service worker reached a violent climax. Did they use the joke, went postal in here? When the carrier (laughs) killed a turkey while on duty, prompting an investigation by the California Department of Fish and Wildlife. The mail carrier was carrying a stick Of some kind, quote, a some kind of a stick, unquote, in his mail carrier vehicle, an aggressive male turkey attacked him. He retaliated and killed it with a stick, which is no small feat. No, yeah, like you don't, unless you got a full-on baseball bat and really cocked back and had that turkey stand still, it ain't a one strike.
5: No, it's it's not a <laughs> swing-and-be-on-your-way scenario. It's
6: like... It's a commitment.
5: Yeah, they don't... There was... It wouldn't be like no. whacking a grouse. Like, they no. just fall over dead. No.
2: Oh, but I do think if you, like, had the right velocity and the the right stick... You could wind up on him. I don't even know how much... I mean, yeah, just like a... In like the head. A, if like you hit a, it in the head. Yeah, in the head or in the neck and you break its yeah. neck or smash his brain with the whack. Right. He's gonna... But The best thing about easily. this
5: is the this is the actual headline, Steve. A feud between mail carriers wild turkeys comes to a deadly climax <laughs> near Sacramento. <laughs> Which one of them died? Like uh, it's, like it's that's what be I'm on right. that When
1: I saw the podcast. headline, I was like,
0: hold a turkey killed a mail yes. carrier? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's these turkeys are getting
6: serious. It's gonna be on the serial podcast. There'll be like a couple episodes of like the turkey's life prior to how it grew up. Yeah,
0: other turkeys. When he was a little kid, the Jakes, the other Jakes, always beat him up, and it like yeah, <laughs> yeah. really impacted him psychologically. Yeah. So they don't know if they're going to press charges on the dude. A guy from Fish and Game was like, "Our job is to determine what exactly happened, and then we fill out a report. We might send it to the district attorney, and the district attorney decides whether or not a crime has been con- committed." The Postal Service said it is an investigating the incident, noting in a statement that employees quote have had several altercations with aggressive turkeys in the area, including a recent attack on a letter carrier. Then they go on to say, however, this allegation is alarming. And if true is inexcusable and does not reflect the efforts of our more than 650,000 employees who faithfully serve and deliver for America every day. So pointing out, that all 650,000 employees of the Postal Service are not stick-wielding turkey killers, lest one start stereotyping.
6: What would be their response if it was a domestic dog, an unchained, unfenced domestic dog, and he whacked it with a stick? Well, right? listen,
3: here, here's... And killed it? Well, they're said they and they're saying it. they don't stand with their employees to yeah. defend themselves? Well, the plot thickens.
0: Is it
2: self-defense? The
0: plot thickens. Or is it the... illegal means of take? Well, attention is turning to area residents as the plot thickens here. Uh, So far, the Department of Fish and Wildlife's investigation into the incident has revealed strange details about the area's turkeys and their behavior and treatment. Investigators found that some residents had been feeding the turkeys, quote, copious quantities of food. Unquote. I thought you were going to go meth turkeys on us. No. Had been feeding turkeys meth. They're saying it probably contributed to the massive size of the turkey in question. <laughs> this is a quote. Because it was eating just an unlimited amount of food every day from this particular household. The turkeys seem to have been targeting delivery workers. <laughs>
6: <laughs> really
0: the attacks had also disrupted deliveries they're indiscriminate in their delivery attacks these turkeys had also disrupted deliveries from FedEx and UPS so the private sector
2: I think there's something to that did you ever remember Popeye at Jimmy Miller's house the one-eyed turkey yeah well that's home bitch was nice as can be for years to me come up strut for you You could Jimmy him. Miller would no, Popeye his one-eyed oh. turkey. It's like I did not know you guys had something like that going on. Oh, okay, go on. Now we're still cool, and uh, never was aggressive. Then one day I roll over, get out of my truck, and I can see him coming for me, and I could see the look in his one eye. I'm like something has changed, <laughs> and like I'm just I, I, foolishly I'm I'm hanging out just like to see. And I mean, it, it, I didn't really have time to think about it, and he was on me like the full-on, like breasts kind of pointed towards the sky, feet coming at me, and wings, bop, 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 you know, coming. Well, not right trying down my to hump legs. you,
0: but trying to beat you.
2: Oh yeah, and uh, so I run around the truck. I'm like, really, what's up, Papa? You know, and I look around <laughs> the corner, and he's coming again. So I quickly boogied into the house. Well, lo and behold, someone else very similar in stature to me had mm. recently been. Around with Popeye and kicking him and booting him and and whatever, well, like a so sadist. Since then, whatever that person just like wasn't into having like farm pets be like pets, right? So he's he was like probably just shooting it off, but like in a, in a more aggressive way than I ever had. And from that moment on, it didn't matter. And if you, Popeye's, if, that's if, his true if, if you were roughly a two hundred pound, six foot plus dude. Lavian. Popeye was coming after you. Really? Yeah. And the kids would get out of the car. Nobody would bother them. Hmm.
0: Wow. Uh, they've been suggesting that these mail carriers start hosing these turkeys with pepper spray. They're allowed to carry pepper
2: spray. But m- I, w- I want to finish. My point is, I thought, thought, thought you wrapped it up nicely. No. the the, oh. the point is, I think that the turkeys can can if that had happened from one delivery driver. Like some aggressive. Uh, oh. They see a truck roll up and they're like. Yeah. And they're like, oh no.
0: The yeah. yeah.
2: Anybody that rolls out of a truck that's not normally around here. Carrying a box. And is wearing a uniform. Like, Get him, boys. No. Nope.
0: <laughs> I got what? Yeah. You didn't bring it full circle. Yeah. yeah. They could, they learn to be like, watch out for that. Yeah. They're, they've been telling them to shoot them with pepper spray. And they've been also beating them with their mail bags.
6: Uh, Brent here has 16 turkeys on order. (laughs) Nice. And uh, he happens to know what the maximum butterball
1: turkey was. (laughs) Uh, We grew turkeys for the first time a few years ago, and we didn't know how many weeks to let them grow. Mm -hmm. So when we slaughtered them ourselves, we weighed them and we had 38 pound to 42 pound Dressed turkeys, dressed, dressed. Dress. These things, dressed. Were, these were big turkeys. Oh, because I was gonna, Holy I thought it was gonna gosh. be so awkward Because I was
2: gonna one up you. Why, why
1: well. breasted? What
2: what uh, what brand of turkey did you
1: get? Uh, they were, I think, the broad breasted. Yeah,
0: I was gonna one up you, but I can't one up that. Well,
1: that's a big turkey, Steve. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, I we didn't know how to cook these turkeys. We gave them out as presents due to like all the in laws, like for their Thanksgivings, like turkey for you turkey for you how long did it
5: take for them to get to 40 pounds
1: uh 22 weeks something like that maybe maybe a few more weeks five months yeah um but they had open you know could eat as much as they want um but anyways i call up butterball has a hotline and you can call this and get any turkey question answered
4: Hmm. Uh, is that right
1: yeah and so i was like why well why not they
0: Well, I'm going to have Corinne – we're going to call – we should get a – do a live call with Butterball.
1: (laughs) I I heard about it because on the radio, they were talking about all the funny calls they've had. Like, does bar and chain oil – is that okay to cook your turkey with bar and chain oil? Because, like, obviously someone – People deep-frying them in bar and chain oil. Well, no, they, like, cut the turkey in half with their chainsaw. (laughs) <laughs> oh, I got you. But anyway, so I call him up because this is a big bird. I didn't want to dry it out. I wanted. It I to thought he good. meant he's
0: going to fry it in barn chain oil <laughs> yeah, no. instead of peanut oil. No, yeah.
1: I think they just got a little bit on it. But um, anyways, I call him up, and I said, you know, is there any recommendations for a 38-pound turkey? And she says, well, sir, that's not a butterball turkey. We only grow up to 30-pound turkeys. Yeah. And so they told me just baste it in 20 minutes a pound. So. Yeah. Oh. they helped me out anyways even though they called me out
0: i, I can't one-up you with this but i can back you up <laughs>
1: <laughs> good that's that's the relationship i'm my, looking my for my boys the...
0: my boys buddy raised turkeys and we went over there and, and we took a 22 over there to get our two and my kid shot it with a 22 just in the little pen there you know and i'm like grab it grab it because it's jumping all over the place <laughs> yeah. and he couldn't get a hold of its neck
1: they're very strong
0: yeah, we, I, I couldn't get a hold of his neck. I took that turkey on a on an actual like like digital luggage scale, and the turkey was 50 pounds. Yeah. On the hoof. I didn't know they got like that.
1: Well, have you Huge. seen the presidential pardon turkey every year? They're like a 50 pound bird. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, they're big.
0: One of our guys, Garrett Long, he
1: claims
0: to have raised a 75 pound turkey.
1: I believe that because These things could have do. kept growing, yeah. these were still juveniles. They I cut,
0: I had to cut the ones I had in half. Was, you couldn't even, like, you couldn't have put that some in your oven. No
1: way, we didn't. 38 pounder Whole. yeah, it just barely <laughs> so yeah. it had about a half inch clearance. Like on his the feet top. were touching the roof. I did some butcher twine for sure, yeah.
0: I want to give one last quote my favorite quote from this article about these man eating turkeys. One of the guys says, I've been around about 25 years, so I kind of know turkeys. <laughs> 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 and I just looked at it, and I'm like, "Oh, this is the biggest turkey I've ever seen."
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, all right, Seth, t- tell the t- give give us t- tell tell us your your bear story. Don't name names, but just tell your bear story. All right, so what
4: was it three, year, a ta- three years ago? No, tax be
0: gone wrong. It
4: was. At least three three or four
3: years ago. Chet was with me when I killed the bear. I killed a bear. Great it was, hunt. It sat in my free. The hide sat in my freezer for a year because I didn't know what to do with it. We
4: all shot a turkey right before you shot your bear.
3: Yeah. It was a great spot. Um, So fast forward a year after I killed the bear, I got talking with Steve, and uh, he recommended
0: Oh, Really? It, well, yeah. Was did that you, really the deciding factor?
4: No, he just told you to take it to this guy.
3: Yeah, no, I don't I know. I, I asked around. Nah, yeah, yeah. I asked around. No, nah, you're right. I don't know if it's a recommendation, but you said there, there's nah, someone nah, that, nah, yeah. 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 <laughs> I know. <laughs> you didn't want
0: to but, take ownership, huh? Yeah, I got to, though.
2: Yeah, hey, I you though. Hey, I was I know it, too. You wouldn't have known if I hadn't sent you there. Yeah. So
0: blame,
3: blame
2: me. So it's, yeah,
3: I'm not blaming anyone. I'm just, this is just part of the story. Um, take my meetup. So this guy actually sent someone that was working for him at the time to pick up my bear here in the parking lot at work. And I wrote a check in full for this guy to, um, tan the hide for me. Um, so this was two years ago when that exchange happened. And I waited roughly, I don't know, probably 10 or 10 to a year.
5: So he was just t- t- tanning it. He was yeah, just, just, tanned, no just fleshing
3: it yeah. and having it sent off to, to get tanned. Yeah, I waited probably about a year before I started bugging them, um, wondering where
4: my bear is. And You probably didn't even bug them originally. You probably just were like, "Hey, man." Uh, yeah, yeah, about no. My yeah, ri-
3: originally it was just questioning when it might be done, and I think this this was like right around the time when COVID hit. So I got like the COVID excuse, like tanneries are backed up because of COVID or whatever. So, you know, thinking nothing of it, just let it go, and then waited roughly another year. And then I started bugging them like, for a while there was like once a week, um, or no, it was like once every other week, once every three weeks, something like that. And then it got to like once a week. Finally, um, you know, I, th- there was a lot of like, um, like I'd I'd say, hey man, like, can I get my bear this week? And he'll be like, yeah. he would be like, yeah, let's meet whatever day, and I'll hand it off to you. And then that day would come, I would text him, be like we still good to meet up and get, you know, I can get my bear and it would, there would always be some excuse, um, to why he couldn't meet. Um, finally the day comes where he can actually meet up with me to give me my bear. So we meet at a local gas station here. He pulls in, hops out of his truck and hands me a black bear. hide. (laughs) black face black bear um and the bear that i had shot was not black it was a chocolate face black bear so i told him that that's not my bear and he gave me like the oh i was in a rush must have just grabbed the wrong bear um my bad i'll i'll go grab on i'll go grab your bear and meet you back here I had to go to a meeting at work here so I was like let's meet back up later in the day.
0: So
4: what was going through your
2: mind? Yeah, man? I yeah, I want to know too. Were you excited? You're like,
4: "Sweet, finally well, you know I'm what? getting my bear. He black tried wear. to get
0: he tried to get Chester to go to the meetup, and Chester chickened out wouldn't go, made Seth go alone. <laughs>
4: so I went the went the second time. <laughs> oh, you didn't? Joe oh, okay. so
2: went the second time. Cuz I cuz of the brow beating I gave you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We, did you think there was going to be something going to go down or what? No,
4: I just kind of oh, man meeting I don't, in the gas station like
2: parking it. lot just seems like I don't know. Chester should have been there.
0: <laughs> Old fishing buddies, go on, Seth. Um, so
3: and I should say there has been lots of rumors going around town about this particular taxidermist.
0: He tried to give a he <clears> tried <throat> my buddy had a black phase full mount paid full price for a. Full mount black yeah. bear. And he tried to give him a blonde phase, a small blonde phase full mount.
3: Yep. So I kind of went into this meetup knowing that I most likely wasn't going to get the bear that I had given him two years prior. Um, So he tries to give me the black bear. I tell him it's not mine. He, he leaves. Um, I meet back with him a couple hours later. And he pulls out of the out of his truck a uh, chocolate face bear. <clears throat> and I take one look at it and immediately know it's not my bear. But I'm thinking to myself in my head, I am never getting my bear. And like I'm just gonna take this one so I have something. Something to it, show for it. Something to show for it. Cause it, I could have been like, listen, this is not my bear. Um and it, it would like, who knows what would have happened. He probably would have gone back to his shop and grabbed a different bear. Or he'd have never seen him Or again. I'd never seen him again, yeah. Hmm. So, and I, I know this is not my bear because the, my bear, when I um, skinned it in the field, I didn't take the time to, like, skin the paws out. I just cut the paws. You just and, wanted the... Yeah, I just wanted the hide. I, I wasn't... I don't need all shriveled up paws hanging off my, my bear hide. I wasn't interested... And this bear he gave me has paws on it. <laughs> Which is a... I put the paws back on for it. I went and found them. I feel, them felt bad, so... Um, Man. Ugh. Yeah, another indicator was when... You, you know, for people that have gotten stuff tanned before, when you get something back from the tannery, it has like that nice, soft, white, white leather. Yeah. Still um,
0: smells like a tannery.
3: Yeah, this thing was like yellow, dirty... Like something that had obviously been sitting around for many years. Mm. Um, so he he handed it to me, like thinking that I know that it. You're thinking that he, you know, he thinks that it, I, I think it's my bear. And I just said to him like, yeah, know, that'll do." And grab it and hop in my vehicle. And but what off. about
6: the person whose bear it was?
0: Was well, so it,
3: old. It's so old. Yeah. It's
6: it's it's. it's they had it's already quit like,
0: You think that that would have wound up in the right guy's hands?
6: No, but huh. it's, it's just like, something
0: he had laying around.
6: Yeah, ask for cash. Be like, "All right, let's just follow you to the bank, and you can pull out a couple hundred bucks that I already paid you." And...
5: Did, yeah. Did that hide have like? Did you see like the stamp they got to put on it, or like any you know? There was there is
3: some sort of stamping on it. Um, I didn't really look into it. Yeah, they,
0: they, t- yeah, they hit him with those little tannerie yeah. stamps. I literally just balled it up and.
2: Do you have any that. advice for people for people that might in the future be looking to get a deposits and not full um, price, right?
3: Man, I I guess just do your research. Don't listen to Steve or or Johnny. <laughs>
6: <laughs> um but if the guy's such a mess too, like I mean, yeah, yeah, as we it, know from our previous podcast guests like good record keeping.
3: Yeah, I guess uh, just do, necessary. Your, do your research on yeah. who you're taking your stuff to. Um if you're in Montana, take your stuff to John Hayes cuz he's
5: yeah, go to, like, an established mm-hmm. plate, yeah. not some dude that's working out of his garage if, or something. If you're going to
3: someone that's, like, if you hear through the grapevine that, like, oh, this dude's cheaper than
0: everyone else, like, that's that should flag. be a red flag. Oh, I'm biting my tongue so bad on a contractor dispute. I feel like piling on. Not about that, but I feel like being like, oh, man, I got a story for you, but I'm not going to tell it right now, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah.
3: Um Not you, but. Uh, yeah, so yeah and then i i I ended up texting him later um just to let him know that he didn't pull the wool over my eyes um i just wanted to make sure he knew that i knew it's not my bear no reply no reply yeah um i sent you a text on this last week
6: yeah um brent i'm sure you can you can weigh in on this this too but um so the wyoming legislature just uh passed a bill that would extend the ability for people to raise this very controversial sage grouse Mm -hmm. program, right. That starts with people going out and stealing the eggs from free ranging live huntable populations of sage grouse. Mm -hmm. So game birds taking those eggs, rearing them to adult sizes, um, you know, there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of eggs don't make it. And then taking those birds and releasing them back out onto uh, the landscape. And, you know, for folks who don't know, like birds that are raised in captivity don't have any sort of a, a awareness of predators. Um, the studies that exist are pretty hand in hand, and, and they're pretty much for pheasants, um, chucker, quail. You know, birds that are, are very commonly raised in captivity for putting... And it used to be um, thought that that these pen-raised populations would, like, help build wild populations. But if you believe in math, there's, like, a 98% mortality typically within the first 24 hours. Um, are meaning, you serious? Yeah. yeah.
0: Within 24 oh, oh, hours of
6: birds
4: are just, stopped? Because they're
0: just standing there, like, out in the...
4: Yeah. Wow. Kel, do you, do you think these people, these folks know at, when they're raising them that they're going to basically release these birds and they're going to die? Do you think they're releasing them for their own personal hunting? Like, Oh, he's like got to he get, would? he's got well, no, it's well, a little deeper now. For that. the, the,
6: okay. yeah, there's a huge like bird dog training type of deal around this. And there's, there's lots of like R3 stuff around this, but not for sage grouse, Um. And what this is, this is like this test period that was suggested that said, hey, let's, let's try this avenue that would allow um, folks who are buying up this prime habitat, this keystone habitat for this species in order to develop it. And maybe we'll get lucky and instead of them having to purchase other habitat that would replace this habitat that they destroyed, they could instead invest in this, uh, rearing population and just replace, like physically replace the birds. So there'd be, you know, a study that goes out and says, okay, well the amount of habitat that you guys destroyed, uh, would have produced X amount of birds. So you guys need to replace X amount of birds elsewhere. Um, However, it just doesn't, you're not replacing any birds. You're just net-net losing birds. And on top of that, you're stealing birds that could grow up to make more birds uh, at the the egg stage. And that's what's going on in Wyoming right now. Um, the governor over there has already said that he's in support of this prior to the uh, state legislature um, voting yes to extend The, uh, it was supposed to sunset, meaning it was supposed to stop this year, but they voted to extend it, and, uh, there's no good science supporting this. So, um, if you don't like your game birds to be stolen, and you'd like responsible development to go out and be responsible with our wildlife as well, uh, let's make sure they do so. Call the governor of Wyoming and tell them to, uh... Not only not sign this bill, but veto it.
0: If you were, you're going to dumb this down as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Let me let me say in a statement and ask this is a fair statement. Um, the greater sage grouse has been flirting with Endangered Species Act protection. Like, there's a case to be made that it should be listed, ESA listed. Um, years ago they struck a deal that people thought was going to be very impactful on sage grouse recovery a lot of that stuff wasn't implemented it became highly politicized that's failing and so they're suggesting that to hit the numbers they need to hit they just pen raise them and then periodically release pen raised birds count them up and be like oh see there's enough yes. or is it not as simple as that
4: well
6: i mean that's uh, that yeah we could say sure yeah yeah i mean they're repl- they're saying nope we uh, in theory destroyed this amount of land, which would have produced this amount of birds. Here are the birds.
0: Without a place for them to be.
6: Um, well, they would, they would then be released into a, uh, into suitable habitat. However, they're, they're just not built at that stage to survive in anything outside of a cage mm-hmm. for, is the rationale a viable period. They'll
5: get like, they'll get them. Cause there, there's like a lot of attrition and, you know, a wild brood, like maybe Absolutely. one survives or something like that. Th- they're getting them like past the vulnerable stage and then letting them go. And
6: yeah, with the, with the idea that then they're going to run around, eat a bunch of food, bump into another sage grouse and mate and make more sage grouse. Yeah. Um, and, and there's a, a great study out of South Dakota again on pheasants um, where they took a couple different release points and did like severe predator suppression Um, and they were able to get some hen pheasants to, uh, survive long enough to mate and nest. And, but, you know, like their nesting ability was low. However, when they were able to breed, they could have the same, like a viable, competitively viable amount of eggs as a wild as as an actual wild hen pheasant egg
1: salvaging is a real long term practice so like when i was banding ducks in um san francisco area fairfield area california uh, with california waterfowl they had a practice of egg salvage with ducks mm -hmm. and so out there i think it was partially trying to get more opportunity um mean, more so, hunting opportunity. I, I guess because it's pretty contentious as far as uh, a lot of people believe if that egg didn't hatch, maybe there was a genetic defect that you would not want to introduce got into you. the population. Uh, the other side of it is that it's such a difficult thing uh, to hatch eggs out in the wild, you know, your water conditions, uh, predation, that egg salvaging takes away a lot of those variables. I think that's the case for it. Got it. Um, and I think in when they've tried to reestablish populations of game birds elsewhere, a uh, more successful model is to go where they have a lot of them and take some of those and put them in another place. Yeah. Versus this sounds more like, I I don't know this situation at all, but this sounds more like there's no previous knowledge of life they're just throwing them out there so i don't know if that would be successful if
0: there was if this was a tool in the toolbox right i wouldn't instinctively be against it i mean if we're doing everything we can to preserve habitat right and that wasn't even on the table like we're preserving habitat doing all the things we need to do and then someone proposed that like in addition to doing all the right things uh we're going to attempt to do some of this to see what the efficacy is I wouldn't be like, no, but if you're taking and saying like, oh no, we're going to allow people to develop sage-grouse habitat, we're excusing them from from mitigation as long as they can turn out X number of chicks on the ground somewhere, which will have no long-term, that that won't solve the problem. The problem is habitat loss and and a handful of other factors. Um, It just seems like a bunch of mental masturbation.
6: Yeah, it's it's a... It's just, it's a waste of time when we know what the answer is. And, you know, it's like gas prices are climbing up. I get it. But I th- I think responsible energy is something that, like, everybody can get behind. doesn't matter if it's a wind farm, a solar farm, or uh, pumping crude out of the ground, right? It's like, if those companies do it in a responsible way, then you know people will buy responsibly even more so. Like I I don't understand why it's like necessary to give them this uh end around situation.
0: Yeah, like a workaround. Right. Yeah. Not a reach round, but a workaround.
6: Yeah.
1: yeah. Isn't part of the issue with the ESA listing that um the states haven't listed it yet? Like is that a state managed species?
0: No, it'd be the the listing is federal.
1: The listing's federal, but these are, are being managed state by state. Correct. Correct.
0: Right now, in that that almost changed. It almost changed during. Um, I guess it was during the Obama administration. They very considered and, it yeah. and decided not to, based on this like deal that had been put together by Matt Mead and Governor Hickenlooper and the Department yeah. of the Interior.
6: And it's a big deal. Like doing the work on the front end. Instead of being like, we, Brent and I just talked about this last night, right? It's like, nobody wants to fight unless something's getting taken away from them, right? So our ability to be proactive on this stuff and prevent the bird from going on the list mm-hmm. is severely diminished by people who are like, well, let's just see how it
5: works out. Yeah, right? yeah and once they go on the list, then these people are right. and really like, going to have to do some...
6: Oh, all these cattlemen out there in in Wyoming with uh, public land grazing allotments and stuff—it's like that's that's gonna hurt, you. It's like oh, there's an endangered species out there.
0: Yeah, that was when we had go- Wyoming's Governor Matt Mead on the show to talk about sage grouse. Before he he at that time felt that the energy companies saw the writing on the wall and knew they needed to get with it because he because the, they're. Ability to operate on the landscape was going to be dependent on their ability to recover that bird. I don't know if that's, I don't know if he'd tell you the same thing right now. That was many years ago that he, he was feeling optimistic about that, that like they were going to be, that he felt that they were taking the driver's seat on it because they wanted to stay in business. And they knew that when that bird hit the endangered species listing, business was going to be crippled. You know how Brody makes everybody mad all the time? Oh, here we go. <laughs> about dogs. I'm mad at what's, him. What's
6: what's the breed of the week?
0: I'm mad at him now. Why? What did I do? First tell what happened, Brody, to this uh OR one oh nine.
5: Oh yeah. A while back we talked about OR ninety three, the one that the one what? The the wolf that yeah, well, wandered from job. Oregon way down into <laughs> Southern California and got hit by a car. It was a collared wolf. Another collared wolf in Oregon just got killed, but it wasn't an accident. Um, this this wolf, OR one hundred and nine, a collared female, was uh, shot and killed. Morning of February fifteenth, and a, there's been a series of killings of wolves in the state. Legally, None no, no, they're pro- they're federally protected in Oregon. Just shooting them and shooting them
0: and leaving them laying. Yeah, and um, Brody's condemnation is very weak. What you're like, you do that little thing people do where you're like, No, of course, we know that no one should. That's just a
5: note to myself. Okay. Like, I'm saying if you're the kind of person that like hates wolves and you're going to go out and kill a federally protected wolf with a collar, like, you're shooting yourself in the foot. So, okay.
0: So, you're offering advice.
5: Yeah, don't do it. So you're
0: you're offering advice
5: to to the wolf kind of per- haters. Yes.
0: Okay. So this is Brody's advice
5: to wolf you're haters. You're shooting yourself in the foot because this is the kind of thing that like just draws more attention to keep keeping wolves protected. Like
0: oh, in the long run, it's like that's what you're saying. Yeah. I thought you were doing. I thought you were had a t- pretty tepid.
5: No, no, no. Because no, at the end no. of the day,
0: it's a wildlife violation.
5: It's yeah. He, of bro- it he is. broke a law. And it's, a and it's a federal wildlife violation, and I thought you're being a little tepid. No, no, no. no one ever saying, says that word on this show. It, it's like in gonna, your condemnation. It's going to backfire on you in the long run. Hmm. Is what I'm saying.
0: Do you have a lot of other advice for wolf haters?
5: Not really. No. Smoke a pack a day. Okay.
6: <laughs> that that was a Brody. Do your second. Sticker. Do your second oh, yeah. wolf All story. Right.
5: This just in from the wolf <laughs> desk. Um, <laughs> this oh. one. This one's great because. Uh, it's a, it's a great example of, of bipartisan, you know, reaching across the aisle for the greater good. Um, in Wisconsin, who knows if it'll result in anything, but in Wisconsin, Republican Ron Johnson and Democrat Tammy Baldwin introduced a bill to remove protections uh, for the wolf in the state of Wyoming. Um, to remove I federal mean, protections. I, I, I misspoke. In the state of Wisconsin. Yep. Correct? Um, They were backed up by some some Republicans in uh, in uh, Wyoming. Um, Johnson said that Wisconsin residents should have a say in wolf management. Baldwin issued a statement saying she believes the wolf population is strong and federal officials should let the state manage wolves. Um, And this is the reason they're doing this is is uh, a federal judge in California last month uh, ordered federal protections to be restored for wolves after they were lifted what just last year they were de- the wolves were delisted now they're listed again um this keeps going on like constantly um you know the the wolves here it's like are, watching
0: a yo-yo go up and down
5: oh god yeah since i the, the crazy thing is that the the wolves in the upper great lakes the western great lakes they've been, met recovery goals for i think over 20 years um, there's over 4,000 of them up there now. Yeah, that's
0: what—that's the thing people lose sight of. There's more wolves in the northern Great Lakes than in the northern Rockies.
5: Right, and here, the states, Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, they all have state management of these wolves. If these wolf protectionists
0: would stop spending all this money on lawyers and making fish and game agencies and other people spend all this money on lawyers, imagine what you could do with take all that money and put it into sage grouse. Yeah, or but no one's gonna fight over sage grouse.
5: Yeah, exactly. Um, you know it's been on again, off again. You like they were, you were able to. The states had management in Minnesota for like a year, maybe you could hunt them, and the same thing happened in Wisconsin recently. Um, but now they're back to being that that whole Upper Great Lakes population is is back to being federally protected.
6: Well, it's funny too because it's like if you're really into wolves. Why don't you leave these ones alone and talk about the Mexican wolf or the red wolf,
0: the ones that are really hurting. Yeah. Or Or the wolves that used to be running around in Kentucky.
5: Yeah. I mean, if you use Montana, Idaho, Wyoming as an example, like it's a great example of state management of wolves, right? Like why can't Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota manage them the same way?
6: Well, it's interesting here too, because like some of the language is, if you break it down, is like very, it, it does make sense. It's agreeable. It's like you're you're talking about populations that don't see individual state borders, right? Mm. So it's like, okay, well, if we are concerned with the overall population, is it right to segment off these populations, making it a Wisconsin population, let's say like a Michigan population, can we do that and then still take into context the overall population recovery goals? Yeah. Um, and thinking about it that way, it's like, yeah, I, I do get
3: that.
0: But, but look at the... everything we've done that with. Elk are only recovered across 13% of their historic range. But yeah. We hunt elk. Bighorn sheep. Bighorn sheep, Bighorn right? sheep a fraction Less of their than historic five. range. Yeah. So black bears, a fraction of their historic range. Yet in states that have a bunch, you're allowed to hunt them. No one says like... Well, we can't, you shouldn't hunt elk in Utah because what does that mean for elk covering in Illinois? No one makes that case.
6: That's very true. That's
0: very true. Um,
6: The difference being though, right, is elk in Illinois aren't on the endangered species list,
0: Mm -hmm. right? Because all that stuff predated the endangered species list.
6: And we're dealing with the Endangered Species Act, and this is the language that we're miring through, and yeah, it is just like this horrid, crappy political football that goes back and forth.
0: I want to give people a little context here. It's the thing we've talked about, but I was going to re talk about it real quick. There's a thing, and anytime you're hearing about wolves, anytime you're hearing about grizzly bears, you're going to hear a thing called the DPS. Um, you take something like like, for, so people know, like everything in the lower 40, like everything was wolf habitat. There were wolves all over the damn place. When wolves got listed by the in the endangered under the endangered species act, they got listed across the lower 48. Later, someone said, that's not a very good management decision. Um, Like, we're not going to recover wolves uh, in downtown Nashville, okay? I'm just pointing that out because people wouldn't be surprised Like when you read about the market hunters like Daniel Boone and his cronies. I mean, when they're running around Kentucky and Tennessee, they're interacting with wolves all the time, right? So someone later said, you're not going to recover wolves in downtown Nashville. So let's do this thing where we look at, like, where could you actually have them and create these things called distinct population segments. And let's manage these distinct population segments. And everybody thought this was a good idea at the time. Right. So we made how many other for grizzly bears? Six, seven? Five or six, Northern Cascades, Northern continental divide, cabinet greater Yellowstone yak. cabinet. Yak. Um, would be
6: Alaska, right?
0: No, it's all this lower 48 DPS. Oh, the so they made a bunch of these DPSs. Um, with wolves, okay, Northern Great Lakes, they make these like, and they're like, let's manage this. So the crux of these arguments keeps coming down to, you could point and say the Northern Great Lakes distinct population segment of wolves looks strong. It looks great. But someone who wants to block any kind of state management of wolves is always going to go like, yeah, but what about the neighboring area? And, and so they're sort of rehashing this thing that everybody agreed on is to manage these distinct population segments. Um, like you're never going to recover the grizzly bear in Golden Gate Park. You're not going to recover the grizzly bear in Golden Gate Park. Which so is part talk, of its historic range. Which is part of its historic range. Absolutely. So let's stop talking about areas that aren't going to have them and let's start talking about these areas that have the possibility of having a population. Or that, that do population. have a population. Yeah, that do or yeah. could possibly.
6: Again, like your your point of like all this Crap and the billboards and the, the PR firms and the, the legal firms, like had that money been put, uh, into like a big wildlife easements on the Rocky mountain front, what that would do for grizzly bears and wolves would, would outweigh all the back and forth bull crap that they're going through right now. Yeah. Like, like prevent this stuff from turning into condos. You're going to, you're going to do more for wildlife than, than all your, uh, back padding,
0: Enriching lawyers. Yes. Um, oh, this is, you know, I don't want to hit on this real quick. Cause it's kind of, this just came home for us in, in Montana. Get rid of tags, man. Like, remember the old days? You had to have a back. You had to wear a back tag on your back. And there's a couple states you still got to do that. Like, you're hunting, you have to wear like a thing on your back with your license in it. Cal, did you ever have to do that out west here? No, nope. kind of
2: ever a thing. Wisconsin,
0: nope. shit, man. If if you don't anymore, you only recently didn't need to.
6: When we started uh, kicking around like archery gear, or you know, like tree stand archery gear at first light, um,
0: they had the back tag hangers. Probably like
6: eleven, <laughs> yeah, 2011, 2012. It was like, it's got to have this, you know, a couple of little metal grommets that you can stick this giant safety pin through. <laughs> yeah. For
0: your back yep. tag.
6: For your back tag, And yeah. the
0: last time I hunted deer in Wisconsin, you still had to have that son-bitching thing. How many years ago was that? The last time I hunted deer there, I don't know, five, six years ago.
4: Yeah, I think, I don't think you have to wear them anymore. Yeah. Pennsylvania? Yeah, and you
0: had, to, yeah, you had to, like, you couldn't obscure it. Like, I had a backpack on, and so all the armchair experts are writing in like he's actually in violation because his back tag's obscured by his backpack and, you know. Anyhow.
6: When I I was at Doug's too, so he was telling me about those regulation changes and he he said that the regulations read that if you choose to wear a hat, it has to be 60% orange.
0: Or you just go nothing.
6: (laughs) Right? I was like, so my bald, highly reflective head.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. The way these apps, so our, our here in Montana, they just went to an app. It's called an
5: E-tag.
0: Yeah,
5: the E tag. Yeah, in your future,
0: you're not going to carry a tag around anymore. You might still, you might be in a state where you still do, but it's just going to be all app based. Now, here's the weird thing about the apps. I heard through the grapevine, a little birdie was telling me that in designing the app, they were wondering about the ability that when you were f- when you were tag when you were e-tagging, so you're using an app that works offline. You don't need to have a cell signal, and you fill out information: male, right, right, date of kill, method of kill, male, female, how many tines on each side, right, whatever biometric information they're after. You just do this all in your app, and it, and it, it files it. Uh, there was talk about why not have it also pull the location since if you read your reg, any reg in the planet, a game warden can ask you, take me to the kill site, and you have to take them to the kill site. It's just a thing. Any warden at any time can make you take them to the kill site of where you killed an animal. Also, when you do your surveys, like if you trap and you trap uh, Martins, uh, if... otters, you hunt black bears, you hunt wolves. There's a part in the thing where you say where it was, right? They had this chance where you could have captured that for every tagged animal in the state and you would not need to do surveys, right? It'd just be that you'd know. Imagine like the detailed look you'd have on harvest, but they felt
5: that it was a privacy issue. When you download the app, it asks you, if you want to have location services turned on while you're using that app, and it'll tip when I you,
0: downloaded the app, I didn't notice that
3: it, it asks you the question. Yeah. And oh, so
5: you can opt in, you can opt in, and when you validate that tag, it's going to record right where you're standing. Oh, I didn't know you could opt in.
0: Yeah, you can do it. I didn't know oh, because it's like, like I said, they can go, they have it just is weird because they have the right to make you take them there, anyways, but that doesn't violate yeah. privacy.
5: Yeah, it's can, just like a given but they they like i think a lot of people are going to be leery of saying yeah go ahead and track me while i'm oh yeah no one wants that um but what's so funny
0: is everybody's like you know up in arms about being tracked but like dude what do you think your phone's doing
5: oh uh, sure <laughs> it's yeah. like your
0: phone monitors what yeah. you talk about um <laughs> and serves you ads about it and articles
5: yeah but i posted about how much i like the idea of not carrying around 10 pages of paper in my backpack um and a game warden sent me a message And he said that these apps, you know, they sound great, but there are like cons to them too. Um, There's like he believes there's going to be issues with officers inspecting people's phones, Mm -hmm. perhaps like privacy. Solder batteries. Yeah, but wouldn't that? Yeah,
0: and it'd be like, oh, I I left it at home, or I forgot it. Yeah. Uh, I don't know how to do it, but I, I I get his concerns. It's just the that way ain't it's gonna, gonna stop anything. No, it's just the way this is gonna, gonna be how yeah. it's gonna be. Yeah. In ten years, I don't know, five years, yeah. you're gonna be like, remember tags?
2: Yeah, I bet you. I already feel that way now. Remember tags? Mm-hmm. Because they've gotten just chintzier, and like they used to be a like a substantial tag. It was printed on fancy paper. It was like indestructible. And now, for years, like, you know, Montana, you just print them at home. Nebraska, for probably 15 years. And when
0: it gets been. wet, you watch it dissolve. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
4: <laughs> and um, I kind of like the heavy duty tags. It's kind of like a little collectible thing at the end. Oh, of the yeah. Season. I
2: have a folder that's, you know, two inches thick now of, uh, you know, 20 years plus of tags. And when I started doing it a while back, I'd just take a Sharpie. And after a hunt, I just make a few notes on it. Oh, I was with Chester. We hunted. Lit- didn't get anything. Lick Creek. Uh, didn't get nothing. You know, <laughs> never punched this one. But if I did, you know, who maybe helped. Can, you know, I figure as an old man, those would be nice memories oh, to yeah. flip through.
6: Yep. Enough enough unpunched tags to stuff a pillowcase. That's kind uh-huh. of what I'm working on right now.
2: Does anybody understand this
0: uh, conservation easement tax fraud deal? I don't understand it well enough. It's
1: uh, pretty confusing because it's not... How
0: eloquently can you speak to it?
1: I can bring up some questions about it.
0: Yeah, yeah, tell me. (laughs) How do you use... How do people... How would people use something where they hear like conservation easements? Like who would be opposed to that? That sounds fantastic.
1: So what you're referring to is syndicate conservation easements. I
0: don't know what that is.
1: So there's two types of transactions when you talk to conservation easements. The ones you know, were, can
0: you go real high level? Or can you back up one step and tell people what the hell a conservation easement is? You hear about it a lot in some areas, and, and like growing up, I never heard anybody talk about a conservation easement in West Michigan.
1: Well, they've been pioneered the last 30-plus years. Oh, that'd explain that, wouldn't it? Um, the land trust movement has really caught a lot of excitement in the last 30 years. Like in Maine, for instance, we have 80 land trusts because we don't have much public land, so... It's been responsive to that. And so when you conserve a land, there's fee simple, which is you're buying all of the land. I own all this land. It's my land. Mm -hmm. And then a conservation easement is a type of easement that restricts um, certain uses of the property. Okay. So most of it is development rights. And so like a land trust would buy the development rights on this piece of property because you want to stay wild. There can be a bunch of other prescriptions in an easement. Like no two easements are the same. Mm -hmm. Some allow public access. A lot of them don't. Um, That's one big misconception is you see conservation. Easement does not imply access. No, no. And there's actually, you know, with federal funds like Force Legacy, other things like that, they've actually required that to happen as part of that program is that that easement has to have public access and public access isn't necessarily vehicular access or anything like that. It's foot access, like just the legal terminology of public access. Um, So the, the thing Corinne sent um, is less interesting from a conservation and our standpoint and more interesting from tax law, I guess. And so when you donate a conservation easement, there's in tax code, um, if you're donating it to a charitable organization, the value...
0: Like, let's say you donate a chunk of swamp to Ducks Unlimited. I don't know. Is that a good example?
1: Well, let's say you, you in Maine, this is this happens. You've owned 100 acres for your whole life, and you want to donate that 100 acres of woodland um, to a university or a land trust, and you want them to keep it. Uh, for the public good and the public good can be defined in, through scenic resources, natural resources, uh, public access, a bunch of different metrics apply under that public good. Even a um, certain amount of income, like you can have it defined as uh, needs to be managed in a certain way. So if it's a active woodlot, right? Like, well, like forever wild easements are very popular now, which means like you can't do anything to it, let nature take its course. Um, And working forest easements are another example where they allow for that commercial use. Like you can log it, uh, you can have roads, anything associated with that use. Um, But when there's a donation of fee land or easement land, there's uh, a value associated with that. So you can get an appraisal for just, like, a fee land, so the total land donation, the, how much is this land worth, that's what the person could deduct.
0: As a tax write-off, like a charitable donation yes. tax write-off. Yeah. Okay.
1: And there's a number of ways they can do that, and that's, like, literally, as a land trust, you say, we can't, you could qualify for this, but we can't give you advice on this. Um, so they have to do all this. So they have to go get You mean a, the land,
0: like, uh, you know what's so confused about land, like, a land trust has always mean like a plethora of organizations in this country that buy, help preserve land. There's now an Airbnb for hunting called land trust, which is like kind of made it. Yeah. I've asked like them not
1: to come to Maine.
0: It's like makes it a lot of name <laughs> confusion because it's like. Yeah. Well,
1: there's also community land trust where for affordable housing. That's a big terminology issue too. So there is a lot of- Yeah,
0: it's like the, 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 you had to like go think of another term now.
1: Yeah. So I, a
0: land trust.
1: So conservancy, yeah. you know, um, th- these are mostly not what that article is talking about.
0: But when you say that, when you talk about the tax write-off part, like let's say I donate my 100 acres. Yeah. And I say to you, hey, man, I need to know the value so I can do a tax write-off. You're saying that you don't well, get you, – you're, you're you like, go figure that out a, on your own. Like, I'm not going to give you yeah, a Yeah, we
1: would have to say – give you an acknowledgement. We'd have to substantiate that it is a charitable um, within that – our mission, mm-hmm. you know, and it falls within those values that we're protecting – And we have to substantiate those values. And most reputable land trusts uh, either go by the standards and practices or are accredited by the Land Trust Alliance. Um, And they have, you know, very long list of standards and practices, um, like getting an appraisal before you buy any land. Um, And for conservation easements, this is kind of a subsect. These have come in favor because the private landowner can continue to own the land, but their development rights are restricted. So Mm -hmm. this is very popular in Maine forest land because the forest owners can get income from the easement purchase. It's not really in conflict with their current use, i.e. forestry. And, um, you know, they can continue to cut the forest after that's... Uh, in place
0: yeah but they're ruling out that it'll be turned into a subdivision
1: yeah exactly you uh, can't subdivide it you can't there's limits on structures and and commercial use and those are all defined differently um, but what's happening in that syndicate conservation easement there's a loophole where um, as a business you can buy land and in this situation you um, Simply put, you get investors to invest, let's say you're buying a $200,000 piece of property. Okay. Um, You get everyone, four guys, to invest $50,000 each. Okay. The issue is you can, through an agreement, say any charitable donation by donating an easement can go to those people in this agreement. Okay. So at that point... They found a lot of people in violation of this where they go get an appraisal that's inflated. So say you get your buddy Jim, you pay him on the side to say, hey, can you do an appraisal? Mm -hmm. Can you make this appraisal come out to be $400,000? Got it. And then you donate the value. And so all those guys who are part of the syndicate get a $100,000 each um, tax deduction. So hmm. it that to me.
0: So that's the crime at play here.
1: <laughs> well, it's it, there's a legal way to do it now Yo. as a tax shelter, but most likely, um, a lot of these these deals, which I'm not an expert on, um, are taking advantage by getting inflated estimates of value and stuff like that. Um, and put it in perspective, I think the article Corinne sent was nine billion dollars a year in the syndicate organizations are getting um, put in for tax write-offs. Whereas the Land Trust Alliance says out of all their ones uh, just within their organizations that they deal with is $1 billion. So it's being um, used uh, pretty much— The numbers
0: that, aren't adding up.
1: Well, at the center of all these deals is usually a um, law firm. <laughs> so they're kind of figuring out— You know, when you do a development, when you do uh, land purchases, asset transfers, this could be a tool in their toolbox where they can uh, give people higher value tax deductions than the investment they're putting in. That's the the, kind of the basic two cents of it. I'm not familiar with it because literally anyone with a logo that says land trust or anything like that is not a party to these deals at all. Like that's not – that's the confusing part about this. Oh,
0: that's why you were trying to create distance between yourself and these fraudulent activities, because you're just not involved in it.
1: We, there's, not, there's no one who really does these. Back in the day, there were some of the bigger organizations that, before the Land Trust Alliance started, did stuff like conservation easements on golf courses. Um, and, you know, obviously that's kind of outside the mm-hmm. point of a conservation easement, but a golf course could have a tremendous value so you would get that donation receipt. And so that's yeah, like worth, the yeah. Land Trust Alliance came, came around because there's a lot of us that are very passionate and integrity, like it says trust right in the name, right? Yeah. So like, you, you know, your integrity is very important. And so to have companies uh, lobbying for this tax shelter uh, is kind of adverse to what we want to do which is build trust and not undermine it through you know, just doing backdoor deals. And that's a big misconception when you're doing land trust work is that everyone's doing it for a charitable deduction. And in my experience working with a couple of different land trusts, most, I would say a majority of the people who donate the properties do not take that deduction.
0: Got it. That's a shrewd trick. You can imagine a golf course or a ski hill or something being like, we're going to come in, we're going to develop the piss out of it, then we're going to take the parts that are meant to be skied on and say that they'll never be used for anything but skiing and get a tax deduction off it and hand it back to people as a conservation easement.
1: Well, and there's two, two issues is that they can create charitable nonprofits that may not be that um, true blue. Yeah. So they, that's a legal process to create that. And so they can create a fake nonprofit, so to speak, to act as that conservation easement holder. Man. <laughs> so that, you know, that's where I don't, you know, I think it's an issue that the land trust alliance is right now they're lobbying to try to close that door. So, so
0: that's the point you were saying earlier where you're saying that they're showing these like 9 billion dollars of land trust conservation easement activity, but then when you go and ask the actual groups that are doing like legitimate land trust work, they can only show a billion bucks. So no, all...
1: no, specifically that 9 billion is syndicate conservation and easements where it's a company who's passing the charitable gift down to investors. Yep. Got it. So versus a nonprofit who may be getting a donation from a individual or you know even a business, but not in that situation where they're passing on the charitable gift through some an investor agreement.
6: And and these Hmm. are it's important to make the distinction right because these are incredible tools. For you know, mon paw rancher out there who uh, want to stay on the land, they want to be able to pass it down, and they need to like be competitive, right? With like rising tax costs, uh, like Gallatin Valley is a great example, right? Like you have uh, property tax values that are are outweighing um, the value of farming of mm-hmm. agriculture here, but you could work with uh, a number of of trusts and the uh, federal government to figure out ways to put wildlife easements on that property that that do pay something.
1: Um, Well, so Maine Farmland Trust has a program called uh, Buy, Restrict, and Resell. And agriculture is a charitable um, use of the land, a public good. And so you don't necessarily have to link it to Uh, other wildlife resources. Um, So their easements are quite different than the ones we've worked with because their sole goal is to keep farmland at a price point that farmers could uh, buy them at. So they'll buy the property, they'll put a conservation easement on it, which reduces the value of the property because you're taking away those development rights. And when you appraise land, uh, mostly you're appraising on development rights. Unless you're talking about large swaths of like forest land, they would then... You know, value those based on like timber receipts and stuff like that. But um, so that their hope is that will allow farmers to stay on these properties, productive farm soils. Um, So that's the easement is to me for public access an imperfect tool uh, because you still have that private landowner issue. So, like, if you want to build trails and stuff like that, you have to be very explicit with what you're trying to preserve. Uh, with an easement because you still have the burden of going to court if that said landowner or or even a third party uh, violates your easement terms, you have to be ready to then go defend that in a courtroom, which can be extremely expensive. Um, So because of that, most land trusts have legal endowments. That's one of the standards and practices, stuff like that, to help uh, ensure against those inevitable costs.
0: I want to get a little bit into your organization, High Peaks Alliance. Can you tell the story of uh, just a – we've been talking about, like, how people sort of abuse the system. Can you tell – because we talked about the Shiloh Pond project that you guys ran. Can you talk about – can you explain to people how your organization and what you did and how that worked out to demonstrate sort of, like, what we're talking about when we talk about – Yeah, um, for sure. Like, yeah. these sort of access projects?
1: Well, so Shiloh is interesting because High Peaks Alliance has been board-driven for the past uh, 10, 15 years. And so we finally got to a point uh, through the good work of our board to be able to hire me full-time. So okay. when we started the Shiloh Pond Project, it literally started with a Facebook post from a guide who's a local lady. She's a teacher, too, who said, uh, how do we preserve our you know, redneck yacht club here, our small pond, the place we love? I had grown up fishing this pond because I grew up in this area. I pretty much fished any pond up there I fish, so it kind of doesn't limit it. But, um, you know, it's this small 20-acre pond, and it does have some natural occurring s- trout and some stock trout, but it's close to town, and it's completely undeveloped, which is rare. And who owned it? So th- that's what's kind of really gets my passion going because – Maine in general has switched from forest landowners to investment owners, mm-hmm. and so the Winter family uh, owned this, and they also ran the HG Winter Mill in Kingfield, Maine. So they had owned a lot of a lot of land across the landscape, and so when you know and they're a forest family, exactly yeah. sawmill, they ran a sawmill, um, th- and this story could replay a million times over Maine, where it's a pulp and paper or sawmill company owns a large tracts of land, um, and. Through technology advances and changes in markets and, uh, you know, this, Wall Street asking these companies to divest these properties, meaning they used to run these as zero assets on their balance sheet to say, wait, that's a lot of money. Let's bring back more money to our shareholders. Let's sell this. So we've gone from, I think, from 1998 to 2005, 40% of Maine's Forest land changed hands. Um, on, huh, give me that figure again. If from 1998, and this has happened before, if you, if you took a bigger window, it'd be even larger. But um, from 1998 to mid 2000s, 2005, 40% of Maine's forest lands changed hands.
0: So not just landmass, but forest lands. You're not counting like every house that sold and stuff like that.
1: No, we're talking about the yeah. 12 million acres of northern Maine. Huh. So and these, I mean, these have a lot continued. buying to, and
0: selling, man, but huge tracks, probably.
1: Well, some of them can be really massive. Um, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres. I mean, John Malone, he's the number one landowner in the U.S. owns over a million acres in our neck of the woods. As one individual, um, he's the guy who bartended at Cheers. You remember
6: that?
0: No. But hon, did he pass up? Uh, he passed up Ted Turner.
1: Oh yeah left them in the dust. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, it was the main, well, that's got to hurt. Peter Bach, big owners, uh was like a subway founder, you know, Apple, like Maine Forest. I mean, there's foreign ownerships, there's uh Yale's endowment owns a big portion of the Maine woods. Um you know, these these are all investment owners, so they're looking to extract as much value mm-hmm. for their purposes, investments. Um and all of us are um, Semi-responsible if you think about, like, we all have 401Ks and stuff like that. And in those, you will have a line called natural resources. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, forest lands are one of the mechanisms that would go into that. Um, So getting back on topic, um, this parcel of land was the last piece this family owned. There was five siblings uh, they'd always let people use the property. That's kind of the tradition because everyone worked. There was a social contract that like you worked at the mill, you knew the landowner. Mm-hmm. It was that, um, you know, you got power. The The forest companies got a lot of influence at the state house and otherwise in the communities. And they got employees. And in exchange for that, you know, we got access to the land. We got good relationships. And so that that culture has evaporated in Maine to where the best you can do now is work with a local forester of said investment group. Um, so that that social contracts kind of evaporate, and that's what High Peaks Alliance is kind of focused on creating. So
0: that much access is evaporated, as that kind well, of well.
1: Some of the access, like let's take Warehouser for example in Maine. Um, they have all their land open. You can camp on their land. Mm-hmm. Heck, I even got a Christmas tree permit from them this year. okay. Um, but if you look at their practices in other states, uh, I don't think they've allowed that much access like out West, stuff like that. So there's still some of that goodwill by some of the companies in Maine because of our landowner liability protections and such like that. Um, but you know, there has been a lot of trail closures. Like, we don't want four-wheelers on our land. We don't want you to camp on our land. And because of the reduction in staffing, you're getting more gates. So they start out as seasonal gates, like, let's protect our road during mud season. That's a reasonable thing to do. Mm -hmm. But you're not going to spend the staff time or build a relationship locally to give anyone access to open those gates back up. And so... You know, for instance, an area I used to go swimming in as a kid, brook trout fish. Um, I wanted to bring my whole wedding party there and, uh, like, have a wedding picture of us jumping off the cliffs and uh, just thought it'd be a cool picture. It had everyone from Maryland, Florida, all these family friends. I got them back of the trucks. We had our beers in hand. We roll up the dirt road. Within a week of my wife and I scouting this, And bringing out my entire wedding party, there was a gate. Mm. And people (laughs) had—it was a real bummer because it was like a mile from where the swimming hole was. So we went and did something else. But it kind of underscores how it's just this slow erosion of loss of access. Yeah, You couldn't point to one thing. So Shiloh Pond, you know, people love it. People tend to love— Uh, The ideas of landscapes, but specifically gems on the landscape, like this is the viewpoint I love the most, this pond I love the most. And so this is one of those places that a lot of people loved. Um, We wanted to get the town to own it because I was still part-time at the time. Um, And so we talked to them, would this be something you would own if we could figure out how to fundraise for it? They said, yeah, people see you have to go to a town boat. You know, there's some interest. So we asked the Trust for Public Land, who explicitly just does transactions. Um, In our neck of the woods, they don't hold any land. So they said they would come on and help us because I laid out, here's the property. Here's some potential funding sources we could apply for. This is my case. Can you guys help us? And so I put uh, Betsy Cook, she's the state director there, in a boat in Shiloh. Like I convinced her to come up to Shiloh Pond and uh, wouldn't let her out until she said yes. Um, but, yeah, so then we – It's we, like a, a very Kennedy move. Yeah. Well, you no, know, I mean you get to this pond and it's completely undeveloped. And I hope you never visit it to all your listeners. Um, but, you know, because this is a community project, right? And so the idea is people like where the money come from, how do we do this? This is impossible, Um and so that's one of our goals, High Peaks Alliance, just showing our communities that things are possible. So we we have to get the landowners on board. You have to sign a purchase and sale agreement. You have to get an appraisal. You have to do due diligence, hazards assessments, surveys, uh, look at land access rights, like going over uh, the right of ways into the road. So it's not simple. We I got Betsy out there to talk about it when it was listed in 2018. We closed on the property in 2021. So it's a saga sometimes to conserve land. Like the quickest you ever do land conservation would be like six months. And that's if you have the money, right? Like, so you, you, it's a slow process. So the landowner has to be okay with um, that fundraising period. And you have to have an agreement to that. Yeah. With my,
0: with my minimal involvement to watching these transactions occur, I hear again and again of conservation groups. They just can't, Conservation groups or federal agencies, state agencies, they can't move quick enough.
1: No. it's and,
0: it, and like a sweet property will come up and it's like people want to do it as a habitat thing. But for the owner, the owner's like, I, I could sell the thing tomorrow for cash. Like I can't sit around and wait for you guys to pull all this shit together.
1: Especially now with the market. As yeah. it, we lucked out in that. I think the family had some sentimental – care Mm -hmm. that this could be a conservation property. So So they're willing
0: to work with you over the course of three years.
1: But we, well, I mean, it was more, more like late 2018 to very early 2021. So a couple of years, but, um, and that's about as long as you ever want to draw one of these things out. It just, um, you know, you have fundraising hiccups. We had a right, it turns out there was a gap in the right of way because these owners had sold a piece of property, but didn't retain a right of way on it. Mm. So we, I had to go get five different landowners on a Zoom call. Mm. I read uh, Chris Voss, Never Split the Difference, FBI Tactics to Negotiation, <laughs> like the, <laughs> like the day before, because I'm like not screwing this up. I mean, like we already were in bed with you guys. You had already sent your was, donation What's the book in. called? Chris Boss Never Split the Difference. It's one of the best books you can read. FBI, Negotiator. I mean, it. his point is you really got to understand your counterpart. To then have them care about what you care about, he's not the
0: guy that did that master class on negotiation. Yeah, he is. Yeah, yeah I haven't taken man. it, but he's
1: interest. really
4: good. Did he?
0: <laughs> I just lost interest. Well,
4: you Why? why? Did, did you take the class?
0: No, but I was kind of interested in master class. Just like I don't want to explain why, but I was interested in that whole world. Yeah, and I happened to watch his one, and I thought it was like uh, I thought it was pointless.
2: Well,
0: it was. He had good tips on small how to small talk.
1: Well, anyways, you should, we got you five let me give you landowners. A let me give you a small talk tip. We got five uh-huh. landowners to sign the conservation, uh, the the right of way access deal. So you got to have something working right for them. But
0: yeah, well, no, I just want to. I, I, I just for listeners, I want to just digress real quick. So let's say you got a small talk with someone, but you don't feel like it. But you're whatever you, your wife makes you go to something. Um, say something <laughs> to me, Cal. Like, just say whatever. Uh, say I got a new laptop. Hey, it's good to see you here. No, no, no. Um, say.
3: Yeah, let me. Okay. Let, oh, me okay. let me. Let okay. me. I, I uh, want to jump ahead. I
0: want to jump ahead. Let me show you a picture of a buck I killed. A buck you killed. Yeah, a nice one. A nice one. Yeah, mm, a nice let's one. do that. Here it is. Just whatever they say, you just <laughs> say it back to them with an inquisitive tone, <laughs> and like people that just want to talk about themselves, it just go for hours. So Cal, be like, say, "I got a new laptop." Hey, I got a new laptop. Oh, a new laptop.
6: Yep, it's uh, silver and a uh, big screen. Oh,
0: huh, big screen. Oh, you like that?
3: What if What if you What if you come across someone that wants to talk more about you than themselves? That's usually not a problem.
0: Uh, go
1: on. <laughs> well, I think the intent is to actually try to understand the person.
0: No, I'll read the book.
1: Yeah, you should. I'm telling you, I'm sold on just for this one transaction. Because you got the deal done. I got the deal done. Well, okay. and we had to raise funds for... Uh, Road maintenance fund because they had been maintaining all the road for okay. all these years, so it's just complex. And so, anyways, um you know what was cool? We had a town vote on this to see if they would accept the property, mm-hmm. and that was really um heartening because you can't get town votes that are landslides usually. But this was two to one in favor. Uh, you know, I couldn't imagine there'd be anyone against it, but that shit yeah. blows my mind too. <laughs>
0: Cal, you remember when they did the they did the Sabanosa? Yeah. And they're like, no, no, we're gonna we're trying to give you the ranch. We wanna give you the ranch. And they're like, well, I don't know if we can take that ranch.
6: Yep, exactly. Exactly. And there's even
0: like people in the political sphere, like to make a point, we're saying, like, nope, not gonna take it. And like, right. come again now? What like why?
6: And to elaborate on this, uh, the Sabinoso wilderness area was our I think our only at the time l- completely landlocked, inaccessible other than through permission crossing private land. So... It was, it was a, wil- yeah,
0: a wilderness area you couldn't get to.
6: Yeah, 17,000 acres, I think. Um, I think it grew to 23,000 acres with... Um, shoot, I can't remember. The- anyway, the, these folks had put together this ranch that bordered the wilderness. Their kids, uh, unfortunately for them, like let, let it be known that they had intended to sell the ranch when mom and pa passed away. Mm-hmm. And uh, Ma and Pa were like, we're not seeing this thing get sold off to whoever. And so they, they cut a deal with um, the Wilderness Land, Wilderness Trust. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And I remember it being a sticking point where they, the, the, the BLM, right, had to accept it. The BLM had like, to accept it. We're not in the public land business anymore and we won't accept. I mean, they did, but it was like, how could people not want it?
1: Right. I think it's
0: like to prove a point.
1: Well, I mean, there's also small towns, you have like the worry of long-term maintenance and, mm-hmm. you know, fixing up the road and, you know, you're talking
2: about- It's like, what's it going to do to the tax base is always that. Yeah, well,
1: yeah, exactly. Sure.
2: It costs money to own land. Yeah,
1: and you know. I mean, that's all dependent on you know, the level of investment and development you want on your recreation lands. Like ball fields, obviously, are going to cost a lot more than undeveloped forest land. You yeah, know, yeah. so I don't think there'll be a tremendous cost. And, you know, when you're thinking about these projects, you always want to think about those costs when you're fundraising. So, like, we have a fund uh, to help them with some of their startup costs. Oh, that's a good idea. Well, like, you know, the bridge needs to be redecked. The road needs a little fixing up. and, and Yeah, so you're not
0: handing them a total pile of uh, headache without some way to mitigate it.
1: Well, not only that is uh, we've helped them develop a town committee. And they actually, uh, we capped it at nine members. There was more applicants than available slots. And so the select board actually had to interview some of these people. So we got a really good mix of passionate people. And most of them all had some personal connection to them loving Shiloh Pond. So Mm -hmm. that's one of the big benefits I find of local conservation is you're building some of that self-governance across the landscape. It's like you have a say in the land. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's important. You, you guys, what was interesting? Um, you know, part of the part of the fundraising was your help. You know, with the land access initiative, and that was a really um, fun grant, so to speak, for me because it was so different than everything else we do.
0: What was the normal way you were getting the money?
1: Well, like you, a lot of these deals, you try to structure it around one head large grant. So Good. ours was this main natural resource conservation program. It's a mitigation fund. Um, and then you have trust for public lands costs, the survey costs, the other land costs, all these deals. And, um, you know, so you have a number of private ph- philanthropies that solicit grants. Got it. And individuals. And so, you, and you know, you guys were a little uh, different on that. I saw the, the posting, and I said, "Well, what, what the heck? I'll put in something. I don't, I don't know why not. I do a lot of these, so it's not that you mean much like upward. explain
0: the po- Cal. Explain the posting.
6: So yeah, it's so our our the meat eater land access initiative, which started around uh, the Renella Putellus 2020 campaign merchandise that we built up, and then we got it. We we're like, oh, we should do something good with this money, and it became like the campaign promise." which was provide more hunting and fishing. like, And so we decided to fundraise, fundraise through merch, fundraise uh, through some auctions, and uh, even got a couple of direct donations that, that we were able to funnel to Brent and the High Peaks Alliance there at the end. But uh, our ask was for anyone who listens to our shows, goes to our website, uh, watches our stuff on on Netflix. If you know of a place that could use more access, ideally, like, you know, granny's passing away and doesn't want to see the the farm go to just anybody, so you guys can buy it, and it provides, like, a a pathway to 100,000 acres of landlocked public land. Or the only
0: way to get on the river
6: or the only way to get on the river, or an easement that we could help pay for that goes through a new subdivision into the national forest. There's a, a bunch of different things that we'd be interested in. So we kind of put out that call to action a couple of times. And we have a, uh, if you go underneath the conservation tab at the meteor.com, you will see our land access initiative through there. You can go in there and and click the button that uh, says uh, you know submit a property submit a, submit a property. We have it on there twice, just in case you miss it the first time. And that and you
0: just found it like that, just
6: Joe. I
1: saw the um, Runella Patelis ad. I got a kick out of that, and I said I'll go look at it. Did well, you buy a
0: campaign hat? Sticker? I did not. No. Are you I guys
5: running
1: shit. in twenty twenty four?
0: we got to wait and see man <laughs> got to wait and see how it sh- how the field shakes out
1: um yeah no so i checked it out most programs from companies are really horribly executed in that they're normally worried about how it's going to look for them mm-hmm. and when i saw your program the questions you're asking i could tell you actually wanted to do a project and help a project so most of these things I just cut off. Like I don't attempt them because you can, the, when their first question is what's your social media following, you know, you know that their intent is not the project. Their intent is to do cause marketing, which can be a benefit, but it's hard for me to put in a lot of effort into a grant application when you know it's just going to be an extractive process. Cause these, these are pretty difficult and you have to, Respect the donors and respect the grantors. But, you know, you want to work with people who want to do the work. Yeah, And so the question... is the term we just used?
0: Cause what? Cause marketing? Cause marketing. That's interesting. Uh, That's a good term.
1: It's been a lot. It's been um, an exciting term for nonprofits, I guess. Um, But also, like, you you think of, like, Tom Shoes. That would be an example of cause marketing. Wouldn't
0: it be like that we're going to name the sports arena... Kinko's Stadium.
1: Well, cause marketing, that, you know, th- I wouldn't call that cause marketing. Okay. I would call it like these companies are showing as part of their business model. Um, it's not about profits. It's about like mission. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of times they use a nonprofit to align that way. Yeah. Um, whereas like I keep thinking of Tom's Shoes, like you buy a shoe and they donate a shoe. Patagonia is a
0: good example. But but I don't get where, it, where why is that bad.
1: It's not bad. Oh. It's that when I am a nonprofit trying to get this project done, it's expensive money.
0: I see. Where you might be in a situation where you're like, that's all good and fine, but I got to move and I don't want to bog this down with.
1: Well, how, you know, it's more like a job, right? I would call that fee for service. Like sometimes we do work for other organizations like writing management plans, stuff like that but i would consider that a fee for service or a sponsorship versus
0: a grant or a, a, a donation you know, or yeah just okay. how
1: it ro- it's and it's there's legal terminology obviously but then there's just the reality of limited capacity to work and please a business to the fullest extent that they want because they have an outcome in their head versus um you know we're trying to get this this deal done okay
6: what uh so how how do we do be i mean be honest it was our first year so
1: well i think we can do a crash course on conservation just because um you know like the examples you're using of like hopefully your grandmother has access to this it simplifies a pretty complex process of yeah. like finding opportunities uh vetting opportunities vetting funding sources you know so i think With us, it's worked. We had a benefit because most conservation organizations are so put together in their approach to projects that something like this might have been hard to fit in. I don't know what you got for applications. Um,
0: How many applications, how many things did you get, Cal, that were serious?
6: Oh, I think we ended up with close to like 450 submissions. And of those, I would... I would only consider like 150 to be like worth a, a second look. And of that 150, uh, 23, and then got down to eight where you're like, oh yeah, this is
1: real, real deal stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and that's, I mean, when you're working with reputable organizations, we're doing the research to highlight, through our strategies, what are the best opportunities? What what are the most bang for your buck? Because there's not a single nonprofit that's not working under restricted funds, and so you know there's a lot of effort going into uh, looking across the landscape. What are the the landowner willingness? What are the ecological values? What are the constituents' values that want to donate to such things? And So you get to a point of a lot of people who call you up and say, hey, you want to conserve my land? Uh, There's this idea that there's this endless amount of (laughs) money in conservation because there's some people that donate lots of money. But Mm. it's not like compared to what land costs, it's a difficult thing. Um, So when I applied, the questions were pretty straightforward. You know, like what's the opportunity? Uh, What do you guys need help with? How do you see – Meat Eater helping. There's a few others. Um, And what was exciting to me is, you know, I've really enjoyed uh, the Meat Eater series on Netflix. I have not consumed as much on everything else just because of time. Um, But your ability to describe what hunting is beyond the kill Mm -hmm. is, you know, what I've reflected with. And so that's, like, why I'm in conservation is that— you get uh, to see people's love of the land and you get to describe that in different ways. And so, you know, in real terms, everyone in Kingfield loved that piece of property for a different reason. Mm -hmm. Like one guy talked about ice skating there as a kid. You um, You know, trout fishing, caught my first trout there. Used to camp there, used to throw parties there. You know, like so people have... Different ways to relate to the land. So, yeah, we used to burn tires and
2: have keggers have out there. <laughs> yeah, they still letting uh, high school kids have keggers? No, there?
1: no. Well, it's not. Kids these days don't have the same fire in their gut. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: they're lazy. Yeah. Exactly. They don't want to pack tractor tires a mile back into the woods <laughs> yeah, to have yeah, a kegger.
1: <laughs> I think that died. My generation is maybe when that died. Um, but yeah, so we applied. Cal reached out. Um, that's That was refreshing to me because usually as. These things unroll. Your first few opportunities are your best opportunities, and then people uh, encumber these things with process and make them more cumbersome. Is just the 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 way you apply because um, you get more committees involved, you get more people involved, and it becomes more difficult to. You know, grants in general are like this. Foundations in general are like this. Um, but I think I don't know if Cal remembers the email, but I got an email from. Ryan Cal Callahan. I got a big kick out of that. And um, I woke up 4.30 in the morning because you have to get in your tree stand early. And uh, (laughs) I think I wrote that in the email. Like, I'm writing this in the golden hours, so I'm most focused, meaning, like, if I was to be hunting, this would be the best time to hunt, and that's why I'm writing you back at this time. (laughs) So I'm, like, super focused. Um, So uh, your goal is just to present the best case possible and... Cal did a great job. He flew out very soon after to make sure I wasn't full of crap. Uh, Got a famous red, main hot dog. Yeah, it's great. Mm -hmm. Like
0: a lot of extra phosphates.
1: Well, I I don't know what makes it red, but it makes it taste better. (laughs) They probably got the snap. Yeah, Yeah. I got you. It's got that
0: snap you read so much about.
1: Yeah, we took. You never had a red hot dog. (laughs) Mm Hmm. Have you ever had a red hot dog? I've had red hot dogs. Oh, you don't have to read about it then. Mm -hmm. We took. I'm
0: talking to the listener.
6: (laughs) Took a paddle around took
1: a paddle around the lake, checked out the waterfall.
0: So did, did Cal seem like a shrewd negotiator
1: when he came out? I I think he just wanted to find out if what I was saying was the truth and that, you know, it was easy to do. Um, I was excited to show him around the area because the, the area in this area of Maine, it's we call it the high peaks, which is puny compared to your mountains, but it's the 10 of the 14 tallest peaks in Maine. And it's that aggregation. Um, it's headwaters of a lot of the rivers in Maine. Yep. And so, you know, there's a lot of big landscape conservation happening now too. Um, you know, Boston University put out a study of looking at Biden's 30 by 30 goals. And mm-hmm. if you look at like species diversity, carbon storage, uh, ability to protect large landscapes, um, all those things on their own. Um, have different areas of the U.S. that those could be the highest values. But, like, Maine really lights up when you start laying all those values yeah. on, on top of each other.
0: Uh, people that talk about, you know, people talk about 30 by 30, by 30 for a while, and, uh, I, and and they point out the necessity to sort of, like, uncouple that with the Biden administration.
1: Yeah, I you know, we—
0: Because now you're going to fall into this thing where the next administration— They'll jettison it because it was the Biden thing I, or vice versa. It'd be like, you know, throwing out whatever anybody had, ahead of you did. Do you so know I'd like you to go where back it came and
1: correct. up? I think it, I think I think go it came back out of like uh, E.O. Wilson.
0: <laughs> Is that who? Okay. Call it the Wilson 30 by 30.
1: Yeah. And, and, uh, just, I think he wanted 50 by 50. Exactly to your point.
0: Is that right? 50% of the landscape by 2050?
1: That w- I think E.O. Wilson, that was what he wanted.
6: The uh, Arizona legislature had a, a bill um, that uh, I can't, I don't know if it passed or not, but it said uh, it was just a flat out no to the 30 by 30 plan, which isn't actually a, a plan yet. It's just yeah, like, it's, it's a in concept. The, it's a concept right now. Like but,
0: no, con- uh, you can't hold that concept in your head. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but if <laughs> like you do, we'll find you. <laughs> that's a little
1: polarized. Yeah. And I guess the, they just latched onto it as like a good marketing piece. Yeah, yeah. A lot of people have pointed that out. Um, where you put those lands, like for instance, I think Montana is something like 37% um, publicly owned, state and federal, something like 30 to 30. I got two different numbers. One is 30. I think that was the federal land. So it's like maybe Montana already has their job done, right? But Maine, Maine's conservation land is um, easement and otherwise is 20% of land. Whereas all of other, all the other New England states combined is 27% of land. So that's 4.2 million acres of conserved land in Maine versus 5.8 in the rest of hmm. New England. So like Maine has cheaper, cheaper land, uh, which is changing rapidly and large landscape. So it's like a place where you have a lot of opportunity that is uh, easy, more easily executed on because it's all privately owned already.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Did Cal uh, ever make a suggestion that you change the pond to Ocal?
1: Ocal pond?
0: Yeah.
6: Well, there
1: is Or, a, else, or else no moolah? There is, you know, a, there's uh, one stipulation here I forgot to mention. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you checks sorry, you spent. Um, <laughs> 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 there was a debate, and I have never solved it, but on the older maps, it's called Dutton Pond. Mm. And sometime, it was renamed Shiloh. And I've- debated whether this was because of the biblical references. Yeah, that sounds
0: very Old Testament.
1: Or was it like Battle of Shiloh? Like, did they change oh. it after, you know, those wars? This, So, you know, I don't know. I haven't been able to find it. I did find a cool Forest and Stream article, which was um, the precursor to Field and Stream. And they talked about how they brought up a guided group to the three ponds up there, and they caught 500 trout over the three days. And they're gonna start bringing up more and more people. <laughs> they had them all on a stringer. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. yeah. So.
0: Man. So since the since the you guys finished the the pond deal, yeah, done, got all the money, bought the thing. Um, has there been any uh, has there been any cons to come out of the whole thing?
1: It's been interesting. Um, has
0: it been heavily visited?
1: There's been increased visitation for mm-hmm. sure. Um, mostly non, I, I, I don't think it's a hunting and fishing crowd really. Is that right? I think a lot of the local press brought some of the resort people down to check it out. Um, there's definitely an interesting um, study we could do on canoe storage. So we've been debating because in Maine there's a tradition that you drag an old canoe Uh, to a body of water, and you just leave it there for anyone to use. Yeah, in case you ever need it again. (laughs) It's a good way to
0: get a canoe out of your yard.
1: Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And um, the problem was people sometime in my lifetime started locking their canoes. They would put nicer canoes out there and lock them, and so that's led to, like, way too many canoes. When everyone just used some Mm -hmm. old beat-up, you know, aluminum canoe, it was fine. You know, you got wet, but that was the deal. It was like there was a canoe there. You didn't need to bring another one. But what was interesting is we've had old canoes leave and new canoes show up, but it's a net negative. So we've set a policy of thresholds of canoes that if it reaches this specific threshold, that we'll consider it an issue. Oh. But for now, we're going to keep it as is, like traditional Maine, like you leave your canoe. Because we're going to keep the parking lot out where it is, and yeah, it's going to be a walk-in pond Um So that's – the idea is what we've heard from everyone on the committee is that they want to keep it uh, primitive. They don't want to build it up too much. They want to do more traditional signage um, and have it – because it's just so rare to have something with that feeling of wilderness be so close to, you know, town.
0: I know a spot that that people stage boats and there's – they've brought three up over the years. Two of them are unusable now. One of them is huge and bright blue and it's hard to get them in there.
1: Well, you're not bringing them out, are you? I just, I want <laughs>
0: you so bad, though, because it's yeah. so beautiful to get them, like, oh, there's that stupid thing sitting Well, down. like,
1: in, in <laughs> Northern <laughs> Maine, Nature Conservancy, AMC, they do programs. They have volunteers that go out and drag out these broken up Oh, teams. do they really?
0: Yeah. Oh, God, I have to call those guys. Yeah. Let's see what the budget is. <laughs>
6: <laughs> it My- is pretty funny, though. Like, the you, you get underneath, like, the canopy of the trees right on the pond shore.
0: Where I'm talking about or at Shiloh? At Shiloh. Oh, okay.
6: And it's just like, a long history of uh, paddling on that lake laid out right there.
1: Yeah. And it's like,
6: and th- those people on the end are dead.
1: <laughs> well, we've joked that. Like, is there, are some of these boats here, like, past their owner's demise? Like, you know, we, I don't know if we'll ever find out.
0: Yeah. You need to do like you got to do when you leave an ice shanty um, out on the lake. If you leave it there, you got to put your name and address on it.
1: Well, there's been debates about a boat registry and that doesn't sit well with some people. Imagine not. No.
0: They're like, but I'm just trying to get rid of this old boat.
2: Well, <laughs> While you're registering your guns, go ahead and put down any canoes you own. Exactly. Oh, yeah.
0: I firmly, I stand firmly against canoe registry.
2: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but
0: I could see in the case of something like that, it might be that if you're going to ditch your canoe at this pond, since we own the pond, we would like you to leave your name on it. That's not big government telling you to register your canoe.
1: Well, so we have a system worked out. There's one boat that's irritating me. They le- Most everyone's respectful, brings it back up into the forest like in this area that's been culturally appropriated here. just uh, There's one guy that keeps leaving it on the sand gravel bank. And, you know, it's just being lazy. And so mm-hmm. I've dragged this canoe three times now. My new approach is going to be drag it back to the parking lot with a note. No, so, it's like, every time they want to <laughs> leave it on the shore, they have to bring it all the way back into the pond. so gotcha. big woods canoe politics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
6: um, Brad, layout?
0: Oh, sorry, go ahead.
1: I was going to ask Brent
6: if he would be excited to know uh, how much funding we have in the land access pot right now. Yeah,
0: you got. That's what. That's what Cal. Now you got to lay it out, Cal. So you got to titillate them.
6: Year one, when we, I, I don't even know what what we really started with, like five grand or something after our initial kind of push, and then we started forming this thing up, and eventually, um, we cut you guys a check for. Like thirty five grand,
1: is that right? Uh, n- well, with the donors you helped link us up with, it was seventy thousand, all said and done. Yeah, and then,
6: um, yeah, so that was like cash on hand, fundraising, and then uh, some some last minute uh, donors. Well, I really wanted to two. thank
1: you guys because I was pretty blown away with like the DOS boat and um, your rifle. You know, I've never considered ever putting my rifle up for anything, so I thought that was
0: I got a bunch more. I'm fixing to
6: auction you know, off, yeah. man. So we auctioned off the original DOS boat uh, from our series DOS boat, uh, lefty rifle from Steve. Giannis threw in at least backpack and some other oh, yeah. things. I think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had a, some really good donations. I, I got a steel chainsaw in the mix and some some good conservation books, and um, and that that was a fun fun thing. And and we are. Obviously, it's live on the website right now. The Land Access Initiative lives again. We're taking um, both donations. If you make a purchase at the store and, and round up, you can choose to round up into the Land Access Initiative. Uh, the Auction House of Oddities is going to come back in mid-April. Oh, that soon? With a bunch of awesome oh. stuff, uh, in, in, including we're working on the Mako, the DOS Boat 3. Which I honestly want to bid on, so you got some competition. If you so that DOS
0: boat, three boat will be an auction item, not a raffle item. Oh, that's sorry right, because there's some legal thing you can't.
6: Right, that's such a yeah, pain, in, my the pain ass. in the butt. And we're trying to do good stuff with it. Like, is somebody really going to be like uh, you get guys? So I
0: get so sick, like that it's Shiloh like, pond it's so, thing you did. It's so cliche to like dog on lawyers. But holy cow, those guys just made yeah. stuff just so complicated.
6: Um, uh, so yeah, you can you can contribute that way or. We would absolutely love, and I know Brent has a bunch of good ideas. He's going to be one of your competitors. Suggest a property. Submit a property that we can explore and hopefully help fundraise and and secure to provide more access to hunting and fishing.
0: You'll know you're getting close when Callahan shows up and paddles around. That's right. No water, water, whatever. (laughs) He's still kind of paddle.
1: Yeah, that was the tip off. I mean, they're not. Uh, they're not uh, send them out here on a flight, right? If you're not interested.
0: Uh, how do people like like give it? A, give a snapshot of what kind of stuff people should be keep keeping their eyes out for.
1: Well, you know, Brent
6: had uh, something that really was like a, a beautiful situation, right? They they'd done a lot of the legwork. The 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 property that they wanted to secure was going to be held in perpetuity for public access to things that we hold near and dear, which is just like going out and experiencing and enjoying nature plus fishing. Um, I think if you, if you drew a moose tag, you might be able to get a moose out there.
1: Yeah, we have some pictures.
6: Um, and again, they had like a a goal line, like we got to have these funds by this closing date. Here we go. Come in and, and help. And so that, that was a great one. But, uh, funds for let's say fishing access sites funds for uh, public easements through private ground mm-hmm. um, it's, it's something as simple as you know canoe or kayak launches into rivers there's anything that provides more access to a place that doesn't have it
0: yeah the, I think the best case scenario like if you imagine if you wanted to imagine like the extreme good one, It would be, let's say there's some five sections. I'm just throwing this number out. There's five sections of landlocked public land. There's no legal access to it. But all of a sudden, they knew about their granny had an acre of land. And if someone owned that acre of land and made it a trailhead, people would be able to screw around on all that landlocked land. That would be. A well, sweet so deal. I would yes. say some They're... practical
1: <laughs> tips. <laughs> um, hit us with some
0: practical. Hit people with some practical. Well, so tips. I do a lot of public. Oh, well, what's wrong with that? Well, that,
1: that I mean, there's a few good things there. If someone finds that piece of property, Well I said his granny owned it? Well, perfect. Okay. Then that guy one has to figure out if granny is willing to sell. But that that a lot of times would be your best bet is to get a group organization in your area involved. So, like, let's say you find that one acre piece. You've been cruising on X. You've been on your tax rolls, which most towns have public tax rolls. You can find pretty much where anyone, you know, any piece of property exists on Earth. Uh, you can find who owns that. You can start compiling that information um, and then figure out who are the players in your area. So state states usually have boat launch um, you know, departments. And there's if and there, which is Inland Fisheries and Wildlife in Maine. There's federal. So you would look at, in your area, who has done work before mm-hmm. and reach out to them with this opportunity to say, not only do I think this would be awesome for all these reasons, like it connects to your conservation land, it protects this stream, it blah, 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 um, that there's also this group that I think would help fund it. There's this opportunity through the land access initiative that we could suggest this because it would be right up their alley. So your goal is always to link good projects with donor interests. So your donor interests here, as I would describe it, is like it has to be something to do with hunting, fishing. I know you you casted a wider net as far as other access, but my understanding of you guys, which you laid out there fairly obviously, is the project probably should have some fishing and hunting values added. Yeah,
0: mean, if there's a river, assuming there's a fish in that river, which is a safe assumption. Well,
1: yeah, but not, uh, you know, a mile multi-use trail or something like that. Gotcha. Like, yep. Um, so yeah, that, that is the big thing. Go to the
6: com. You'll see our land access initiative and this, this is our big conservation push. So we've and raised-
0: ca- And you're going to assess the stuff that comes in.
6: Yep. Assess stuff that comes in. Uh, ideally, we're gonna have so much good stuff that I'll I'll need some help too. and we got that lined up. so
0: and when we, when we fire up the uh, auction house of oddities, how long are we gonna run it for this time?
6: I think we're gonna run it for two weeks only. So lots of good stuff, high turnover. uh you this is your chance to make a big impact to access and get something awesome. so
0: that's great. And then Brent, are you going to send in some submissions to Ocal? Yeah,
1: oh yeah, we got we have one right now. Uh, the Nature Conservancy is trying to purchase seven thousand acres for the state, mm-hmm. and our role into it is to try to keep the road open, that for a length to be determined, because this area, like the book I gave you, uh, that moose hunting book, the Great Maine Moose Hunt. Yep. Um, you know, a lot of those bulls in there were shot up in that land. And so, you know, a lot of that lands on going to a forever wild management scenario. And uh, it's good. We want it to be conserved, but we want to keep road access into this area. So we have to raise some money to help out with that. Uh, I see. You know, it's a good one. That's a great example. Yeah,
0: but then we'd have two in Maine in a row.
1: Yeah, but this is landscape. You could show the progression, Steve. (laughs) A oh small that's good. project leading to larger project, right?
0: That's good. Send There's, your thing in. Keep, <laughs> keep that in
6: mind, folks. There's pitch.
0: Send your thing in. Everybody send your pitch in and also do stuff like we'll we'll have various ways coming up where you can support the land access initiative. And people have done a lot of support already, but just like, you know, auction house, roundups. When you go on media.com and you buy something, do the roundup. We're gonna have some roundup matching stuff coming into play. So stay tuned and all that. Send ideas. We're trying to find a really cool freaking project, man.
6: Absolutely. And if you're in Maine you can always reach out to Brent West, the High Peaks Alliance. Talk to him about, you know, being our first ever recipient of the Land Access Initiative grant, let's call it, and uh, see where you can help out in your home state of
0: Maine. If you're listening at home and you've been meaning to go get that old canoe you got tied to a tree up (laughs) at Shiloh Pond, look for it in the parking lot. Well, thanks. Yep, Brent West, High Peaks Alliance. Find them. If If you're a Mainer, that's right, Mainers. If you're a Mainer, um, jump on and, and do support there because they're obviously doing real work on the ground to give people places to recreate outside, including, but not limited to, hunting and fishing. Fair?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I would say, you know, anyone who visits or loves this neck of the woods should reach out because we have a a, a tremendous seasonal population. You know, in this area is the recreation basket for the Northeast. You know, there's 60 million people within a 12-hour drive. And... You know, this might be our last opportunity to keep an area that you can drive to with your family, for your kids, that's within striking distance of those big eastern cities. Keep this big landscape intact.
0: Before it's all bought up and locked up. Exactly. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Stay tuned for trivia. Got trivia coming up. I'm going to
2: smoke Brent West. Bring it. Thanks, Brett.